Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome back, everybody, to this uh, fourth general session. Hope you're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. And uh, we're going to have a lot going on today. So we've got uh, our first panel is going to be get up and get moving. So we'll be covering that's uh, that's our uh, wellness, uh, mental health, health and mobility. Yeah. What's that? Health and wellness. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And in the afternoon, we're going to be diving into literature with Susan Glass and Kelly Breaking Breakenhoff, and then at six o'clock, we'll be having our banquet. So, so pretty good. Okay, so uh, recapping the election results from yesterday, we had, uh, it was, I don't know if it's the first time we didn't have any running from the floor, but uh, the three three officers that were reelected were President Gabe Griffith, second Vice President Rob Turner, that's me, and Lisa Thomas, the treasurer, and we have four board members. Two new board members, that's Andrea DeClotz and uh, Regina Brink, and Jeff Tom was also elected again, and um, blanking on who, uh, oh, Larry Gass, Larry, how could I forget you, my gosh, I know you would have spoken up, (laughs) you would have spoken up for sure, so anyway, Let's, uh, we're a little bit early as far as inter- starting the panel, but uh, it's only two, two after nine. Um, well, my recap went a lot faster than I thought it was going to. <laughs> so, anyway, let's, let's, uh, let's just go ahead and yeah, introduce. Rob, this is yeah. David. I'm going to jump in. Yeah, I was, sure. I was just thinking this morning, it's the first time in my memory that there haven't been any, <clears throat> any contested elections. So, um, Elections went quickly. They sure did. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm... You're going to find out. <laughs> and, and Rob, if, if I may jump in, you want to remind folks about our virtual exhibit hall? Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. So absolutely go check out the list of uh, participants from Andrea that she sent out and uh, pay them a visit. Uh, it's, you know, they're they're giving their time and uh, making themselves available to us. So please uh, take advantage of that and uh, get to know the exhibitors. A lot of good stuff out there. That's for sure. Yeah, I see Brent Harbolt's part of it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's see. Let's go ahead and. So let's go, go ahead, ahead and introduce our get up and get moving panel. We've got, uh, Connie Sims and Tom Tobin, and uh, I'm just going to turn it over to them and let them get started a little bit early. Well, thanks, Rob. Uh, this is Tom Tobin, and I'm the chairman of the Get Up, Get Moving campaign. Um, <clears throat> Connie and I are delighted to be here today. I was so excited when I got the uh, the call from my dear friend, Sarah Harris, that she wanted us to come and present. So, Sarah, thank you so much for inviting us. Um, 
So we're just going to kind of walk you through the Get Up and Get Moving campaign in a high-level way. And um, if the host sees hands, we'd be happy to stop uh, in mid-sentence, or not quite mid-sentence, but at some point to uh, take those questions to keep the conversation flowing. Kind of, I would like to see this kind of become more of a conversational presentation as opposed to us just talking at you. I've been on th that side of the of the ledger, and it's not a lot of fun just to sit there and be talked to. So. Anyway, as, as Rob said, good morning, CCB, and I wish you stole my thunder, Rob. I was going to say, is everybody bright-eyed and bushy-tailed today? It sounds like you all <laughs> are. So, again, thanks for having us here. Um, um, ever since we, we launched this campaign, gosh, almost a year ago now, um, it's been a tradition of mine to always introduce the entire Get Up and Get Moving campaign committee, um, because I think it's important that all of you out there who are listening know who's on the committee, all six of us, <laughs> all six of us. So I'm just going to run down this list real quick. So Dan Dillon, I'm sure you all know Dan, very much involved with the Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk in honor of his late wife. Uh, terrific. From Tennessee. Connie, my co-presenter today, is from South Dakota, also the president of the South Dakota Association of the Blind. So we will be doing a tag team today. Leslie Spoon, you all know Leslie, uh, wife of Dan Spoon, president of ACB also very dear friends of mine and i'm sure many of you amanda selm from the great state of kentucky she's our newest member and uh probably i would say our youngest member but she's been a great addition uh as we um move the campaign forward and then terry suarez who is also from florida um who is uh, an incredible idea generator and really helps to uh, help push the campaign you know to its limits and um help us think of think of things out of the box to do that we think that we we should be doing so um those are the five and of course i'm the sixth person as the chairman and i reside in northeast ohio as i think many of you know cleveland ohio so um so i wanted to start by just kind of a high level giving you the two overarching goals of the get up and get moving campaign uh, they're not going to be a surprise to anybody. Uh, they should be very, um, you know, much in your mind. But uh, the first one, obviously, duh, is to get people up and get people moving, right? So, um, but the important part of this particular uh, goal is that, you know, what might mean for one person might not mean the same for somebody else. So, for example, I'll use my dear friend, Leslie Spoon. She's probably one of the fittest people I know in my life. She is rock solid, works out, does what, three or four community calls a week, you know, with different fitness routines and stretching and uh, weight training and all kinds of great stuff. So uh, she is probably at the top of the, you know, the fitness pyramid in my mind, but there are a lot of other of us out there, including me, I'll raise my hand that probably aren't at that top level fitness. Um, so we have to cater, you know, our particular get up and get moving um, agenda to each of our abilities. Um, so Leslie has been very, and Connie have been very uh, helpful to me in realizing that not everybody can tr truly get up and get moving. So uh, for example, if you're not in the gray shape, you know, even just, you know, sitting in a chair, tapping your toe, raising your head, hands above your head, anything you can do to kind of get your heart beat up a little bit, get your blood flow going a little bit, get your breathing up, your resp respiration up and all that. So that that's primarily what we want to do, but we want to make sure people do it in a safe way. But anyway, so that's kind of the one overarching goal that we have. Then the second one um, 
is a is a little bit more uh, esoteric, I guess, but it's equally important. That is really to increase our visibility in mainstream society. I know that's a goal that we all strive for every day, but as part of this campaign, we're pushing it out as a priority that, um, you know, as I look at this particular goal that um, we, you know, we as blind and visually impaired people, right? We have, we have dreams, we have aspirations, we have our own goals. And so let's put ourselves out there. Let's get us into the mainstream society and show, you know, the everyday Joe or everyday Jane that, you know, we're just as involved and we just want to engage in the way we can um, to, you know, excel on our particular goals, dreams and aspirations. So it's, um, it's integrating us into the mainstream society so that, you know, we become part of that mainstream society and not some kind of sidebar over here, over on the side over here. So those are kind of the two overarching goals for get up and get moving. Um, um, You know, when I, was asked to take this job a year, almost a year ago now, um, you know, Dan Spoon, you know, Dan is, Dan and I, as you, I think you all know, um, I served as ACB's director of development from 2013 to 2020 and helped them get them into a place where they could hire Tony Stevens. Um, so Dan and I worked very closely together when he was on the board and we've become very good friends, but now as his role as president, you know, he's been harping and harping and harping in a very positive way that he um, he really wants our get up and get moving campaign uh, to leverage um, you know what we're doing um, with with other affiliates like CCB um, so that we can you know as I said there's only six of us on the committee guys so we need to leverage our small numbers with big affiliates like you guys and help us leverage the messaging leverage the campaign and work collaboratively. That's the word that Dan uses all the time. And I really like that word collaboratively. So um, it's important that we're able to, you know, to work together collaboratively, um, not just with CCB, but with as many affiliates that want to engage with us. That's really, really probably the real cornerstone of this campaign is um, I I like to use the word engagement. Uh, We need to engage with all of you and you need to engage with us and um, do it in a way that, you know, we're not being prescriptive as a get up and get moving campaign. We're actually looking for you to give us direction as to how we might work together um, and work collaboratively to help this campaign, you know, take it nationwide and make it a big deal. Um, you know, we're, we, we are also working, Tony Stevens uh, is working um, with a lot of corporations right now, corporations we are calling our health heroes. Um, and those right now include uh, Walmart, the American Printing House for the Blind, Vanda, and Larry, I'm missing one. Help me. Um, uh, I, anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. not coming to mind either, yeah, it's, unfortunately. It's, that's right. But that, So we have a handful of health heroes. Um, and that's really cool because, you know, it's interesting how this whole campaign sort of came to evolve. And that is, um, you know, during this horrific pandemic, right, guys? I mean, it was this has been a rough, rough two years, two and a half years. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I finally traveled for the first time in two years, uh, two weeks ago. And I haven't been off, hadn't really been off my property for any significant reasons for the reasons, you know, as a type one diabetic, I wasn't going to take those kinds of chances. So anyway, um but during this pandemic, it's been it's been really rough. And uh, so as we as we get back out there and, and reengage with society, you know, as hopefully I don't know what these all these variants are doing, but um, um, we, we need to do what we can here. But um, so we want to engage with as many other, you know, 
organizations and, and corporations and maybe some foundation, but primarily corporations. Um, I know uh, there's a few that, you know, I don't have public you know, consumption yet, but I know he's working on Nike. Um, and what I started to say, and I just lost my train of thought, so I apologize. Mm-hmm. But when, when this campaign started, there was all this money that came to, to exist for health and wellness, right? Which is what, you know, you guys are doing, right? It's, it's all the rage. Everyone works on health and wellness. And as it turns out, because of COVID and because of all the issues we've had and the restrictions we've had and all that, um, you know, we, you know, we, we, we couldn't, you know, do exactly, you know, what we wanted to do. So um, we're trying to engage and you, this is where you could help us and help yourselves as well too. Um, any, I mean, obviously you guys in California have a lot of, a lot of major fortune 500 corporations, but, um, but there's money out there for health and wellness stuff. And that's kind of how the, the, the rationale behind this campaign got launched. Um, and so there's corporate money out there to support, issues around health and wellness and so we're, we're trying to take advantage of that and um and do things inside acb and around the country with all of our affiliates to engage and and take the campaign national so that's kind of the rationale behind it tom this is gabe could i jump in okay, yeah gabe go ahead and then i'm gonna go ahead then I'll, yeah. you, you were talking working collaboratively with the affiliates and stuff so um what can ccb do to you know what could we do what could our members do to uh to work with you guys and to help push this forward what kind of yeah, things are are we thinking here yeah no thanks gabe i appreciate the question and what i would say is you know i I've liked Connie, and I don't want to steal Connie's thunder, but one of the things that we're talking about is kind of creating a little competitive buzz um, out there. Um, and I'll just use one example that we, we've spoken to the Indiana Council of the Blind, and they have gone so far as to really have their own like mini get, uh, get up and get moving campaign. And anyway, so, you know, transitioning here and pivoting, you know, Connie. Uh, as hopefully you all saw, did such a fabulous job at our DC leadership conference. She, she came to me, oh, probably what, Connie, in early, early, I don't know, early in the year and said, you know, I'd really like to take the point position um, at the DC leadership conference. And as you all know, Connie has tremendous experience with the voting task force and has um, worked with transportation and has done some great stuff at the national level to engage with all of you. Um, and so I thought, gosh, that's a no brainer, Tom. <laughs> so, so with that, um, I'm going to turn the program over to Connie cause she has really done such a great job of engagement. And, um, I wanted to tell her part of the story today. So Connie, please. All right. Thanks, Tom. And thanks, California, for having me. And I I heard Gabe had a question, but I didn't catch what your question was, Gabe. Um, So I I was just asking, Tom had been talking about uh, get up and get moving and wanting to work with affiliates in kind of a collaborative effort. And so my question was just basically, what is it that uh, that we can do as a as a CCB, as an affiliate? you know, to work with the get up and get moving campaign, what kind of stuff are, are, uh, are you guys looking for and what can we do? It sounds, it's a great question. And th- I appreciate that. So that's, it goes right. Like Tom said, it goes right into what I'm kind of talking about. So I am all about collaborating. Um, so I am, you know, the president of South Dakota association of blind and we're a small organization, very rural. I don't have a lot of active members, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> physically and and otherwise so um i have a, mine are 
majority of really older um, members, which is okay. Um, don't get me wrong, but some of them are active <laughs> and some aren't. So, um, and, and being rural, um, it's, it's different aspect. So um, we can't just get together. We don't have the chapters like you guys do. We have a, what we call a local chapter here in Sioux Falls, but it's not, I would say it's called more of a peer support. So it's not what you guys would call a chapter. Um, so we don't have the chapters to challenge each other. So we want as a personal, we always talk about the personal local um, state and then it's the national. So the state and the national is always here to help and to go forward and to guide. But, you know, South Dakota is totally different than Ohio for Tom. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely way different than California, you know? So what the big thing is that we need to help you guys find um, what works for you guys. What's best for California. Um, So Tom was alluding to Indiana and Indiana has started um, their own get up and get moving Facebook page separate than their own um, Indiana Facebook page and it's a private one and it has actually really taken off um, so it's just their members who they share personal journeys personal stories they um, encourage each other And then I had um, a member tell me that she had some invited some non-Indiana members that were visually impaired or blind and um, asked them to join. They were friends of hers and they were so inspired by it that they actually became members of Indiana. So it was like a twofold. Mm -hmm. Indiana got new members. And then at the same time, they have this support system for each other that's totally different than ours, than, you know, say it could be for anyone else. Because they all have Indiana, that's their general thing. So they know what works in Indiana. Um, if, you know, one thing I think for like California is that you guys have a lot of different chapters, and I would love to see this is, you know, maybe have a competition between your chapters. You know, each chapter has different members, different abilities, different places you guys live and see what you guys can do and have a competition. You know, and a lot of times it's that fun competition. It's, you know, that just like a walk, you know, everyone's team, you get fun and have a competition on a walk. And I think that's, what we want to make sure is we want to help guide and we want to work with other affiliates. So we want to work with the multiple culture center. You know, we want to work with, um, you know, diabetics, of course, you know, with Tom's group, we want to work with international. We want to work with, you know, Alliance of aging, we, everything there's, so there's different ways to interact because we don't know what each affiliate or committee may need. So that's where we want to connect and have you guys connect with whoever you may need. Does that kind of make sense, Gabe? Am I kind of going a roundabout way? But no, I think it makes sense. And um, yeah, maybe Larry, maybe that's something we can bring up at a uh, at a president's call and have our presidents talk I about. I was just they, thinking that it's already on the agenda. All right, there you go. Good idea. 
<laughs> Done. <laughs> Good, good. You know, that's just, you know, like I said, it's just, it's fun. I mean, because you guys can, you know, and you could do, I think, again, is like Tom and I talked, I would love to see, we've talked about it on the national level, is try to get affiliates going, um, challenging other affiliates. And we haven't got a whole lot of that accomplished, but I think it's going to take everyone to do it. So it's like, um, whatever happens, whatever you guys could come up with a state affiliate um challenge what would work for you guys we can do it (laughs) (laughs) maybe different you know because i know it was thrown out when i presented with um tony and um leslie at maryland we threw out the same thing and they're like okay tony's like all fired up and you know and pat sheehan who is the presenter you know the facilitator and he's like okay we're gonna do it we're gonna and i don't know if they've done anything yet i don't know but we challenged them and they were all you know, they were like, Tony's like, I'm getting emails. I'm getting, you know, people are responding. <laughs> so I have no idea if we're doing something or not. I haven't followed up with them. Um, so it's like, okay, we need to get Ohio going. You know, it's like, I'm going to be in Oregon in October, you know, so we need to get that, that and affiliate you, to challenge other affiliates. Right. And, you know, Gabe, too bad we can't do this before this weekend because, you know, um, next weekend, Carson and I will be both doing double marathons that would already have us 104 ish miles in the books darn it maybe we can do retroactive get that going sarah maybe maybe we can get it retroactive to may 1st yeah (laughs) yeah so i think that's what we want to do is we want to get you know however you guys if it's running walking whatever you know um i have it's, yeah, I'm gonna say swimming. I just was just gonna say I have two members who swim almost like every day or three times a day, week, you know. So uh-huh. get that swimming going or riding the bike, you know, um, exercise bike, you know, right doing that elliptical. If I can break in for people out on the streets, yeah, hang on. Uh, we if do I can have a hand raised. Uh, we have Susan Glass with her hand raised. Yes, Susan. Let's go for it, Susan. Sure. I I I really like this idea of small groups and individuals sharing what they do and maybe we could have some some sort of a, a a get up and get moving post list what did i do and let me give you a few examples so we have a very active um chapter of the vista center for the blind in santa cruz california and we have taken two awesome field trips recently under the leadership of bob geyer we went over to the uc santa cruz arboretum and had this wonderful tour of the australian botanical garden with the director so we were allowed to touch everything it was amazing Mm. and wasn't a fast moving we were on our feet all day right you know it was really fun another time we went over there and we were supposed to have a bird tour but the docent couldn't come but a tree docent showed up and so we learned all about redwood canopies and cathedrals and everything that's alive up there and we were walking around out there and then a couple weeks ago some of us from the san francisco and silicon valley chapter were up at presidio trying out what of the national parks recorded things and i'm just thinking you know why can't we every time we do something really cool like that have some sort of a list we can post to that says yo guys heads up this is what we did today um because it's it's all movement it's all getting you out there i go birding every day i just came back from a two mile walk this morning um you know which is okay, only two miles an hour, but I'm, and I'm stopping a lot and I'm omni sit still so I can record this. You know, but I just think anything we can do um, really matters. We and can I form think, a California get up and get moving email list. 
Well, I don't see why not. You know? Why not? We, of course and we, we could, And we could, I, I have a horse, so I, I'm out doing that a lot. And, and not everybody has horses, but it doesn't matter. Gaita swimming. I think he should give us a recording of him swimming and huffing and puffing. I think we need the whole thing, you know. Um, <laughs> I think she's probably, probably listening in, but I'm already, I'm already <laughs> sending Vita an email asking if we can have the dog create a, create a list for it. I just think it'd be an amazing thing. And for all of us with dog guides... This is exactly what we should be doing with our pups. So if I sound enthusiastic, I must be. Thank you. Well, Susan, this is Tom. I just, I'll just comment. I'll just say that uh, we've actually been bantering about uh, a kind of a sidebar initiative with GDUI, and that's hop up and get moving. Sp- I love spe- it. Specifically for you dog guide users, which I thought it was kind of, it wasn't my idea, but it was an idea that was, which was presented to me. And I thought that's a really creative way to engage an affiliate. So yes, it is. And yes, I, I love it, Susan. I, I thank you so much. It is. And it actually goes into another part that I want to bring up is that we want testimonies. So yes. we want testimonies if it's written video pictures, we want testimonies sent to us because we are working on testimonials and so we can share and then we can share to as i believe tom was talking about the health heroes and corporate and that helps get us the grants that helps us get the sponsorships to show what we can do and and how long do you want a testimonial when we write something a hundred words what are you looking for anything just anything it can be anything it can be short it can be long because we can take the whole thing we can edit stuff we can do more than one testimonial if you know like you with the horses that's awesome you with the birding that's different testimonial you know i'm sitting here right now you guys are gonna think i'm crazy i have resistant bands and i'm sitting here have resistant bands on my thighs and i'm like <laughs> using my legs i'm actually exercising my legs as i'm You're living right now, <laughs> i did i am um so first we have olivia Thank you. Hi, Olivia. Hi. Hi, Tom. Hi, Connie. Um, Christy, I'm stealing your thunder. Uh, since I'm VP of, a, of CDA out here, uh, you know, which is our newest affiliate, the California Diabetics in Action, and Larry, you should be on this too. Um, you know, we're, this is a, 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 you know, vital component. I know I need help personally because I, I'm not really an exercise fan. But I know I got to get off my rear and get, you know, get up and and get on my bike and uh, exercise bike and stuff and and whatever. And, um, you know, I think this is something that CDA could uh, really uh, almost, you know, take the forefront on here in in California, Gabe. And uh, Christy, if you're out there, uh, put out your two cents, too, girl, because I know you're all about that, too. And we do have an education and program committee that deals with stuff like that. And part of that component is fitness and nutrition. Uh, and uh, 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 Younger, I can't think of, Vivian, thank you. Vivian Younger and others are, are part of that uh, committee and I am as well, and Nellie uh, Emerson. So um, I'm just out there shouting out for, for us. So thanks. Excellent, Olivia. Love it. Excellent. Love right. it. Thank and you. Next, next is Christy Crespin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm following right behind. That's funny. So I'm excited because 
there's so much we can do. I just sent the board because I'm a board member. You know, let's get the get up and moving. I would call it CCB get up and moving. Um, because we want to make sure that, you know, people know we're CCB. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the list, the, the friendly, um, friendly challenges. But the other thing is that I don't know how many of us have Fitbits. And I would love to find Fitbit friends, or I don't even know if we can create a group in Fitbit to have that uh, friendly Fitbit. I know Judy Wilkinson and I had been talking about it um, way back when she was president. And so, um, gosh, it would be wonderful to find people even across the country who have Fitbits or have some kind of trackers that we all can friend each other on and, you know, have these friendly competitions. Thank you so much. And yeah, um, Tom, it's, it's really, your excitement is contagious. Thank you. And thank you, Connie. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. So that, I mean, it's awesome. And I will, a couple of things is, you know, so Susan's wondering about the, the bands. I will have to say that there is actually an exercise um, myself and Pat Sheehan is an action item with bands and other fitness stuff that we are actually auctioning off of the thing, but you can get a pair. And I actually, Susan, or any of you guys, I can share. I have different ones and I have found there's a set of five and they're polyester. And I believe it's M I H L is the company, but they are the best or polyester. There's five different strengths and they stay put because a lot of bands roll and these are smaller ones, but you have extra light, extra heavy. And I use different ones for different exercises and I can share that information with, you know, Gabe or whoever and um, give you the site, but I got mine off Amazon and they're not very expensive. There's other brands and stuff, but this is the brand that I have found. I've bought a couple different ones and I've always been into exercise and fitness, especially with my background. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is there's, I believe there is like Fitbit information out there or groups and one of the things i the um get up and get moving campaign is partnering with the iac um committee for at national and there's actually a session called 411 high tech low tech and we're going to be talking about um issue equipment ways to exercise with using low tech, no, no tech stuff yep. and stuff that have high tech. So you'll get an idea. And I think it's going to be awesome because we got some really good, um, not just be, besides us, but some other good presenters from the IC group that exercise and share some of their journeys and information, what they use. So that would be another good thing. We have thing. another hand up and that would be Nicolette. Um, well, Hi. I'm on that committee too. So I figure I might as well jump in. Um, Having had, having had all of this time at home during the pandemic, I've always had an exercise bicycle. Um, a friend of mine gave it to me. Somebody had made it for her. They just put a regular bicycle on a stand and it works very well. It does have different levels. I can do that at home. And I also got a special deal um, last year on the little treadmill that you use with your feet. And I specifically did not get the electric one because I wanted to be doing all the work. 
Also, I've had um, two knees replaced and I've had a hip replaced. So there are a lot of exercises that you can do at home, on the floor, on your bed. So even if you're not able to get out and walk, there are a lot of things that you can do. And if you've got no exercise stuff whatsoever, those, those bands that you use are great. They're not that expensive. They're wonderful. And just regular exercises with your own body really mm-hmm. help a lot. So thank you very much. And Nicolette, I would, this is Tom. I would say, hey, you've got some great testimonial yes. opportunities there, right, Connie? Yeah, so. ex- I, exactly. I'd love to hear those. You know, <laughs> love you know and that's those. what we... We talk about soup cans. We talk about, you know, frozen vegetables and stuff, yeah. you know, and just your own body weight, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, even standing like, you know, you, I was thinking about this earlier and, and I used to do medical stuff and I used to teach, you know, I was a certified sports. So I, I, I worked for chiropractors and I worked, you know, for doctors and, you know, but guys going to think I'm crazy. But, you know, when you stand in line, especially like, you know, long grocery lines or whatever, you want to just kind of like you want to squeeze those glutes that that but those mutt muscles your abdominals <laughs> because that actually makes your back stronger if you don't have a strong core your low back your back's not going to be strong yeah. so that actually helps so that's just a simple thing you know people think you know but it's just a subtle little move that you can do while you're standing in line you know right. or yeah that's what I was going to say. You, you kind of you took us into some of the collaborations that we're doing at conventions, so I thought I might continue that yep. narrative. Um, information access is our first collaboration um, with all the fun tools and things you can do to measure your exercise and your fitness. Um, get up and get moving um, uh, is also collaborating with ACB Diabetics in Action and Donna Brown's uh, Brenda uh, Dillon Memorial Walk Team, um, and um, you know, we're, we're working together. That's all about moving, right? So we're, we're um, working. If you register, if you're coming to Omaha and you register for the walk, you'll get invited to what's turned into a much bigger deal. And that's a tailgate party. That's actually now going to be hosted by ACB and used to leverage and, and recognize and acknowledge our health heroes in a bigger way. So um, the idea came out of ACB Diabetics, but it's now been elevated to a much more prominent level and ACB Diabetics doesn't have to pay for it. So there you go. Anyway, but that's that's going on. And then we're also um, collaborating. Next gen. Pardon me? Go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Next yeah, gen. next gen. Oh, you do it. Yeah, next gen. Go ahead. Um, it's just health. It's health and self-care. So, um, and that is on Tuesday, the 5th. So, um so Go that's ahead, that's going on. That'll be an awesome thing. And then uh, to kind of, you know, um, round out the convention activities, we are doing um, a collaborative uh, get up and get moving dance party with BPI, Blind Pride International, and the Multicultural Affairs Committee, um, which will be fun. We're, we're going to have a DJ and have music. It's going to be right after the banquet. So whatever, 830, 9 o'clock. And we'll kind of... Um, That'll probably be the last activity that we do at convention. But so anyone that's coming to, to Omaha, which I hope there are several of you that are coming. I know it's not an easy place to get to, but we'd love to have you join us with all these get up and get moving activities. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun. 
we are having uh, a walk across the, um, the the bridge expands from Nebraska to Iowa. It's a one mile walk each way, so it's a two mile walk all together. And we're hoping to get some good media coverage for that. Um, anybody has a drone? We would love to get drone coverage. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, so we're we're the get up to get moving committee and folks are going to be busy, busy, busy at convention, and we invite all of you that are coming to Omaha to be part of it. We're going to have a lot of fun. Nellie Emerson would like to say something. I am really excited about um, the Get Up and Get Moving um, you know, initiative. Um, I have um, participated in, in fitness and exercise activities um, throughout my life, gone, gone to gyms and to the Y. And during COVID, uh, things had to change. But mm-hmm. what I want to uh, say is I want to encourage everybody that... Um, a habit begins just by trying something and then doing it for a short period of time and then doing it um, consistently. And as, as um, I have um, done, I can uh, increase the time that, uh, that I uh, work on exercises and also things that um, are just totally enjoyable. The birding uh, is is one of the activities that uh, that I participate in, and uh, so I just want to encourage each of you. You can begin small and increase, and it'll be beneficial to you and to everybody. Thank you. I love that Thanks, really Ned. about starting a habit and turning it into something permanent. That's really a, I, I like. Can I steal that? I like that. I love it. You know, and, and it is, and it's so true because you want to start small. You don't want to start and think, Oh, I can do all of this, you know, at once you want to start small and you want to do one thing and then just gradually, you know, I've, I've been exercising in health all my life, but there's times I've had to have setbacks and stuff. So I've had to start slow back over again, you know, and it's like, really i'm like i used to be able to do all of this you know <laughs> so i was like now i it's like now i have to start slow again and it's like and it's frustrating but it, again it's that mindset and it's it's you feel better you mentally emotionally you feel better um you know and it's your muscles your your whole body will appreciate you it's a little, it's a little bit you know it's just walking around your house walking around your hallways you know if you live in an apartment just go you know my my mother-in-law was passed away but she lived in an apartment and she used to go just walk her hallways you know she that was what she did for her That's exercises did, yeah. yeah it's like yeah. go up and down the hallways you know up and down the steps and walk hallways and that's all that you need to do. You know, like just me with these bands right now, I'm not getting really a heart rate going, but I'm getting that movement. I'm getting something just going. I walk around the house with them. So you get that resistance, you know? So yeah. it, it's a little bit of just anything. It's up and, and down, would, kneeling. Yeah, yeah. I would just add to what, what Millie said about, you know, starting slow and what you said, Connie, about starting slow and building a habit and, one of the other things I found personally successful, I, when I could see, I was a pretty avid soccer player and played baseball at varsity level. And, um, you know, but that, those days are long gone. But um, having a buddy system too, someone says, hey, come on, Connie, let's go for a walk. And then so she's like, oh, yeah, I was just being lazy. I didn't want to do it, but you got me motivated. Let's go do it. I think a buddy system is another great strategy to help all of us get up and get moving because sometimes it's really easy to say, yeah, I'm not in the mood, but if I have a buddy to go out and work with, work out with, it makes it a lot more fun. Yep. Uh, Rob would like to make a comment. 
And uh, I'm also a big believer in exercise. I, I, I think just ever since junior high school, I had an inspirational uh, PE teacher and really got, got us going. And one of the things that happened to me is uh, <clears throat> I like to do my running in place. And for a while, I was kind of self-conscious about that. And then I kind of realized, you know what, I don't really if 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 my neighbors because i'll do it outside you know and if my neighbors see me i i get to the point where it's fine you know yeah it probably looks weird i mean i i don't know but i think it's great also because i've had some positive comment hey good have a good workout you know you're 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 really getting your exercise and and i think discipline is really important too that's the other thing it's just you really have to just like you say if you're not in the mood just somehow force yourself to to do it and uh i say more power to you rob i love that idea i, I love know, it when I, when I went back to finish my degree at kenyan i had a single room and so i wasn't you know almost could touch you know one wall the other wall if i spread my arms out so i turn on you know cassette tape that goes long tells you how old i am goes back to cassette tapes but i put a tape of just music on and i just dance around in my room i'm like i don't care if anybody sees mm-hmm. me i just i'd work up my heart rate i when i was done i was sweating soaking wet and it's like you know, it may look stupid, but it got the job done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's just it. Is that you know we live in a smaller house, and my lo- husband loves to um, lift weights, and we have you know an exercise bike, and we have you know the manual treadmill stuff. But he is, we don't have room, or we have an old house, we don't have the high ceilings, so we can't do like a lot of the higher stuff. But he is so creative with different bands and different because there's like again there's all different types of bands but to work out his legs and his his arms and stuff things that I would never think about how he sits there and thinks about well I can do this exercise if I just adapt something else so I think that's really a good way to do it because we all just think outside the box Mm -hmm. and again it's the body it's the body just moving and how this is going to work for you or this is going to work for me but I see that. Susan, go ahead. I'll be I'll be very quick. Um, I love the running in place, Rob. Thank you for that. And I don't care who looks either. Um, uh, <laughs> the key word here, I think, is collaboration. You know, in the in the really depths of COVID, you know, I, I was trying to do everything by myself, walk the dog and yoga and stuff. Frankly, I got depressed and a little lazy because there was no one to talk to about it, right? And I think just to have someone to say, hey, what'd you do? Did you get out today? No. Well, I did. Oh, well, you did. I better get off my butt, you know, because um, it can be very hard, even when you have your bands, even when you have everything at your disposal, if you are feeling lonely or isolated or going through a little bit of seasonal affective disorder, which I have every year because I have pretty profound light perception, you got to have some help. And I was so bummed when yoga class stopped because it was live. And I think just creating this network on our CCB, you know, what are we doing? Our, our fitness group, maybe having fitness buddies in ACB where we call each other up. How, how is it going today? It's, it just keeps it going. We're social creatures, aren't we? We need it. Thank oh, you. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Susan. You're right. And I, you know, I know we're getting close to time, Tom, but I, I, I really would challenge you guys you know, be the first affiliate to come out and speak up and say, this is what we're doing for an affiliate. Let's hear what the rest of you guys are doing. I mean, Indiana did that with Carrie Goodman at the DC talked about the good, you know, the Facebook page, but I I would love to hear feedback and how you guys are going to challenge each other and support each other. But please, you know, 
um, you know, reach out to Tom or myself and get us testimonies because we, that's mm-hmm. what we, we want. I mean, share among you guys yourselves, but then get it to us on the national level so we can actually spread it. And when it doesn't have to be one or two, it can be anytime something inspires you, some type of inspiration. And it doesn't have to be great things. It's just little things because all of us are different. So what, what might be great for me might be a little for Tom, but it's something special. It's something that makes you work and what makes you tick. And this is a little bit off topic, but I, I, I wanted to mention that our affiliate, uh, the California Council of the Blind, we've had a, a fitness consciousness uh, going back to when Judy Wilkinson was president uh, several years ago. We we had been working with a company called On the Move and selling the, uh, the sit mills, uh, you know, where you you're basically in your chair and you use the uh, the sit mill to to get some mm-hmm. exercise. So uh, I, I just think. It's something we've been thinking about for for quite a while, and um, it you know it's 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 been on our consciousness. So uh, I just think it's real important to. I'm just a big believer in exercise. What can I say? That's the okay. Time, That's the right. time is now is you know is to really you know we're, we're our role kind of in, in my role in the whole campaign committee is really just to try and do what we did today guys and get you all excited as an affiliate about, Oh, how can we do stuff? And you know, that that's what our real role is here and however we can support you guys and, you know, help you achieve what you want to achieve. That that's, 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 that that's our goal. We want to help you guys to do what you want to do to get up and get moving. So sorry, Larry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, whatever, whatever we do to keep it moving, whatever it is, the better off we are. I have an on the move, uh, that I bought. And when I'm sitting here doing tons of stuff for ACB and it means I can't get out of my chair to do stuff. I I'm hooked up to that. When I, I also have a, a Nordic track in the front room that we were given, John and I were both given and I also use that. And then there are times when I want to walk and we can walk about a mile and a half, maybe two miles up and that far back. So I do a combination of all three. I need to do it more often, but I've got choices. And sometimes variety is really good. So you don't do the same thing over and over again. Excellent. But there's point. no excuse. And I also have physical therapy things like thoroughbands. Mm-hmm. The last time I did physical therapy. So I use those when I'm sitting here as well. So there's all kinds of ways to get it up and get moving no matter what you're doing. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. You're, that's just it is there's so many different ways and I you know I I mix up my routine all the time um, and try to do different things because I don't say I get bored but that way you can work different body parts and mm-hmm. it might the same routine may work the same muscle group or the same area the region of your body but at the same time it's a different movement so it's using those muscles at a different angle um, and that's just part of me weeing medical massage. <laughs> you know, you have your muscles in surgeon and, and origin. So it, it's just a matter of how you uh, work in those muscles in that group, in those ligaments. Mm-hmm. So what else do you think, Tom? But I mean, that's kind of, I would love to keep, see you guys and hear what you guys decide to do. I, I think this is yeah. fantastic if you guys can do it. Well, it's, it sounds like there's a lot of enthusiasm. I, I, I applaud that. I, I really do. I do I, too. 
And there's no formula. It's a kind I've been saying it's, it's up to how you guys want to do it as an affiliate and frankly, how you want to do it as individuals. I mean, Susan had a lot of good ideas. Rob, you had some great ideas. Gabe, some great ideas. Larry, you know, so challenge each other and say, Hey guys, how do we really leverage this get up and get moving campaign? And, um, you know, and, 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 and hit it hard. Yep. I, I agree. I mean, and that's just, it is just support each other. Um, yep. Have that buddy system and do the Facebook or the, the email page and just share things and encourage, because that's the biggest thing is you need that encouragement. You need that support is just like a good, you know, clap, clap thing, or, you know, just happy that you good job. Sometimes it's just the simple words yep. is, you know, I'm glad you did it today. You know, it's just, it doesn't have to be thick things. You know, I have a buddy, I have a friend on my watch that we keep track of each other. And sometimes we don't even pay attention to, you know, and respond to say she does a workout or I do a workout, but every so often you can just kind of tell that you need that. Oh, good job. or way to go or something, you know, but that's just a, an ongoing thing that we know that that support is there. We need it. This is a good reminder too for for us uh, chapter presidents to to maybe maybe have a program about this at our at our chapter meetings. You know, we're always looking for sure. new ideas. Bob Acosta has his hand up. Oh. Rob. Yes. Uh, good morning, all. It's Lisa. I just wanted to interject really quickly since we have all this great motivation starting so early this morning. Why don't we uh, give a little bit more motivation? and do a door prize that someone can maybe go out and buy some exercise bands right now on Amazon. May I comment first, please? Yeah, let, let's, yeah, uh, we'll let Bob ahead. comment. I'm old, I'm, I'm old, fat, and gray, but my dog makes me work every day. Thank God. <laughs> he says, you idiot, let's go. I don't want to go. Let's go. And we go. But I want to challenge the council. It's great. Connie right. and Tom are two wonderful people. And I'm, I wasn't going to even come to this. I, I said, you yeah, know, and I'm listening. And I, my comment is this. I challenge the council to create a Zoom program once a week to get, you know, not only lead us in exercises, sedentary because some of us are old. Uh, and, and also, wh- where do we get the bands? Where do we get some of these things? What is it going to help me with? I don't know who Rob Turner I think of because he was in the Sierra Club very active athlete, but I'll leave it to the council and our president. That That's getting moved. It doesn't cost money. And those who are interested will be there. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. I, as we're winding up here, Rob, I just wanted to say yeah. um, we do have a Get Up Again Moving Facebook page. We would welcome all of you to join. Right, Connie? And, exactly. Um, and I would just also like to say, I'm sure all many of you have this, but I want to just give my contact information out so that it's easy to find me. Uh, I mean, Larry Great. can share with you guys, but um, so um, so there we do have a, a Facebook page that Connie and a few people oversee, which is I'm I'm very new to Facebook, so I depend on Connie to help me. But uh, so send me send emails to my email address is T is in Tom L is in Lucky, my last name T O B I N at att dot net. So that's T L Tobin at att dot net. And my cell phone uh, is 847-846-8375. And reminder, the 847 is a Chicago area code. It goes back to my Hadley days, but I'm in Northeast Ohio. So on Eastern Standard Time. And I'll, and I'll share my information. My sure. information is out there too, but it's Connie. It's K-O-N-I dot L 
sims s i m s at gmail.com and my number is 605-941-9512 so i'm in south dakota i'm central time um and i'm actually in the process right now of emailing the the bands that i use and right now on amazon prime they're like 1387 there's a set of five of them so i mean they're really reasonable they they're cheaper than they were when i bought them um but i'm gonna send them to and i think yeah (laughs) exactly it is you know it's that and it's actually i think cheaper than when you know and these are the bands that are going to be in this exercise healthness group of stuff that um patchy and i are actually um offered for the auction so it's something different for that um if you send that to me connie i'll i'll get it distributed out yep i'm actually doing that right now as we talk so um, yeah i i think it's just be a good you know and i i love rob um you know about challenging you know because it it doesn't have to be anything big and hard or you know it's just it's something that it's like, as Leslie would say, I'm going to take Leslie's line is just tap your toes. As you're sitting in your yep. chair right now today, just tap those toes, wiggle those fingers, you know, tap them on your desk or chair. And that's just movement. So, and I love it when she talks about that, because that's just movement. Yeah, you were you were dealing with your crisis, but yeah, I mentioned that because that's one of my favorite uh, Leslie Leslieisms. I like to call them. Yeah, it's, so what you know, you don't have to be a fitness guru like Leslie. You can just tap your toe, raise your hands above your head. You know, all that stuff about just moving is really it, everybody's different, and uh, you got to go at your own pace. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Tom and Connie, for hopefully getting us up and moving this morning. Uh, it's uh, I definitely. Uh, know how important this is because uh, if you don't exercise you're not going to be that healthy so yeah. so let's get motivated and, and uh, go from there so well, thanks, again we thanks really very much for for, ta- for taking your time out this morning to uh, talk to us about exercise well thanks to you and thanks to sarah for reaching out to me and the get up and get moving campaign and inviting us it's been a real pleasure guys hope the rest of your convention goes great and uh, thanks again for having us our pleasure nice so lisa Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Time for Thank a door you. prize. You ready? We are ready. Okay, I'm all set up. Let's go. Spin that wheel. <laughs> Sound effects and everything. <laughs> right. And we have a $25 Amazon gift card going to Christine Bailey. Hey, Christine. Nice way to go. And by the way, I was, uh, when my computer crashed last night, I was uh, sort of hearing in the background, uh, my wife said, Hey, Rob, you won the $50 uh, uh, Golden State Guide Dog Handlers uh, door prize. So $50. Hey, that'll be like Gabe said, that's good for an hour of tech support if I need it. So. <laughs> And, so, and Rob, how speaking of your computer, is your computer uh, behaving today? So far, so good. Good, good. Yeah. All right. So again, a reminder to everybody: don't forget to visit the exhibitors. Uh, check out the list that Andrea sent out, and give those guys your business if you can. And um, <clears throat> so now we're ready to move on. 
to our next panel, which is going to be about mental health. And we're going to have Linda Johnson and I think Jeff is actually going to introduce the panel. Okay, good morning everyone. So before I start, I want to give credit to my uh, co-facilitator on this effort, um, Alice Turner. And, you know, the pandemic has underscored for all Americans, and specifically those of us with vision loss, the seriousness of our mental health concerns. But in reality, among people who are blind or who have low vision, mental health problems have been a real um, under, understated opportunity for decades. I remember hearing, you know, when I was first part of this organization and, and for years to follow, well, all you have to do is, you know, you lose your vision. You just have to learn that blindness is not really a problem. You just have to learn how to cope with it. And it's not a big deal. It's not a mental health problem. It's just, you know, getting those blindness skills. Well, that was obviously a, a mythical and, uh, and a view that really was not uh, borne out to be at all true. And as decades have gone on, we realized how serious um, these issues are, not only for folks uh, who lose their vision later in life, but also for those that are adventitiously blind. And so I think... Um, the time has past come, long past come, when our community really does a better job of addressing this issue. And today we have with us um, two panelists uh, who I think you're going to enjoy hearing from. Our first panelist is Roque Buckton uh, from Duarte. A Roque is a member of the State Independent Living Council. He is a strong and passionate advocate for mental health services um, in California and specifically in L.A. County, where he serves in a number of capacities um, dealing with projects on mental health. And he is a low vision individual. Um, so you'll be hearing from him in just a minute. Our other panelist is someone whom many of you know, um, from Northern California, Linda Johnson. She is also a person with vision loss um, and a ardent mental health services advocate. But she is also um, a blind marriage, family, and child therapist. So she is a clinician as well as an advocate. So what Alice and I have decided to do um, is that I have come up with some questions that I am going to be asking these folks, and I am sure we will have time for your questions as well. So let me start, and I'm going to let them just take it at, at whomever wants to go. I'm not going to, you know, say who should talk about this first, but um, and they can both obviously address any of these questions. In your experience, what do you think are the commonalities and differences between the mental health challenges faced by those who are congenitally blind as opposed to those who are adventitiously blind or low vision. Either one of you want to take a shot at that? Thanks. Mute. Currently on mute. Hi, this is Roque. 
Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for um, hosting this event. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak about this topic. My name is Roque Alas Bukdan. Um, as men, uh, mentioned earlier, um, uh, I've been doing quite a bit of work in the disabilities and mental health sector. Uh, I was the Access for All uh, co-chair. Access for All is the advisory committee for the LA County Department of Mental Health. And currently I'm conducting um, uh, on behalf of the Department of Mental Health with the nonprofit that I work for, Painted Brain, we're running a disabilities mental health needs assessment uh, for the entire county. We're running a series of focus groups uh, to get feedback about uh, services and obstacles and appropriate accommodations, et cetera. And uh, we're, we'll be publishing that info and study. So um, if you could be so kind as to refresh and uh, restate the question, please. Sure. Um, the question is basically, um, what do you think are the commonalities and differences between the mental health challenges faced by those who are congenitally blind as opposed to those who lose their vision later in life? Um, I can say just from having run focus groups now since January, um, there's a lot of feedback um, about uh, how people lose their, their sight, especially those who are going through the experience of diminishing uh, ability in their sight. Um, and that seems to be some of the most difficult um, populations, and I hear that from other organizations in Los Angeles, like that's the primary population that they want to develop services for, develop peer support groups for. Um, that's just my experience, uh, um, and in just personal interactions with people. I have retinitis pigmentosa and some other issues with my eyes, and so I lost my eyesight over time, and it was very, very difficult to experience sight loss. And I would say one of the things that was probably causing a great deal of suffering in me was grasping after sight, like just remembering the things I used to be able to do and wanting to still do those things. Once I sort of let go of that and just accepted my state of sight, I was much better was a great deal of healing and I was very mindful about that it was the grasping after sight and um, it wasn't acceptance or something like that because I wasn't very happy with the condition still uh, and that caused other mental health conditions uh, to arise but it was understanding that what the root cause of my biggest uh, uh, issue was and then I was I just consistently develop uh, better mental health um, practices over time. Not that I'm perfect in, in any way, shape, or form. It's more like just uh, maintenance, keeping it together like we all do. There's like so many stresses and pressures plus our disabilities. So um, it's just an overall wellness approach. Linda. Hi, this is, yeah, hi. <laughs> 
Um, so this is Linda Johnson, and um, I've been at this uh, since 1988, and I lost my vision to retinitis pigmentosa. And I'll just be real brief on the history piece because I think it's really important because it mimics or echoes what um, Jeff mentioned about blindness skills. Um, so I'm now 63. So when I was in my mid twenties, my RP was getting to a point where I couldn't fake it anymore. I had to really start addressing my issues. And I come from a very loving and supportive family and we talked about everything. So that wasn't the issue at that time, but it was more like, how do I do this emotionally? I was really scared. I was really depressed. I had a lot of anxiety. Um, and so everywhere I looked, it was, well, you can learn Braille, you can learn a white cane or get your health adapted through daily living skills. And at that point, I still had about 10 degrees of vision. And so, as we all know, like when you have a vision loss, your brain <laughs> is able to, you know, um, fill in the blanks, so to speak. And I didn't need that. I wanted to talk to a therapist that was blind or visually impaired and I, or I wanted a support group and none of that at that time I could not find. So I started the uh, California RP support group and it started in my parents' house with eight people. And by 1992, it grew to over 490 something people and we turned it into a nonprofit. But this launched my whole passion um, to really focus on this area of mental health and vision loss. Um, and so I, let's see, there's so much in my head. Um, so what happens here is a variety of things. So with the congenital blindness and adventitious blindness, so I did um, a couple projects for school. One of them was I did a study where I was wondering about middle-aged, not middle-aged, but um, middle schoolers who had experienced vision loss. So they were congenitally, you know, visually impaired. So, because I was wondering, because at that stage of life, a child is focusing on their particular difference. Like their nose might be too big, their ears might be sticking out, and they might be heavy. So, and then they feel everybody is staring at that one thing that they're having, you know, uh, concerns about or don't like about themselves or feel different. And so I was wondering if that would be a part of a child's life who was living with vision loss. So, and in some cases it was. They didn't want to be using the white cane. So a lot of times they just walk around without the white cane. Um, and then I furthered that with going in, when I was working at Vista Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired, um, I ran a support group for transition age group kids that were um, 13 to about 20. And for most of the, the time, everybody's okay with where they are because that's what they know. You know, they didn't know what it was like to have say 2020 vision or full range of vision. And I didn't either. I didn't know full range of vision 
because I never got a driver's license, but I knew what 2020 was. Um, and so anyway, their issues became more about dating and socialization and um, that sort of thing. And wanting, you know, they can't do the driver's license. So they're kind of set apart from their peers. And so transportation is an issue. Um, and I think with all of us who have been diagnosed at an early age, I was diagnosed at age eight. My parents are very open about what I had, didn't understand it. <laughs> I go, well, everybody sees this way. And I think that that does happen. Um, and so, but I think when it happens for children, the parents are the first ones to deal with the trauma. When I was going through this issue of my vision loss, and, and I couldn't fit the grieving process into it. Yeah, I'm grieving this loss. This is really hard. I really hated it. And quite honestly, there was a time where I didn't see a point of life, but I wasn't, so to speak, quote unquote, suicidal. I literally felt so overwhelmed. I see it as a metaphor for feeling so overwhelmed with not knowing what to do. It's just, you know, I don't understand the point here. So this happens with people that start maybe um, they've lost their, you know, a gradual loss of vision. This can happen. Like I do talk about this with people. Okay. And um, uh, one of the things that I saw was that this is more than just the grieving process, but this is really a trauma. And so I did my master's thesis on PTSD and blindness and interviewed 74 people um, and come to find out that people that do have a gradual loss of vision experiencing a gradual loss of vision versus a sudden loss are slightly higher in the symptomology of PTSD, um, which is a lot of anxiety. It's in what uh, Roque was talking about that whole concept of um, remembering what it was like to see in PTSD, that is the, what the first criteria is nightmares, disturbing dreams, disturbing thoughts, or disturbing memories. And to have PTSD, it's, you can have a um, chronic illness that can create PTSD. I'm not saying we're all having PTSD here. I'm just framing it as a trauma. And so the disturbing thoughts and memories is remembering what it was like to see. Oh my gosh, last year I could see all the lights on the Christmas tree. Now I can't. Um, and just, and I'll wrap this up here with this, is that in my practice, I did a little statistics here. Um, uh, over the past six months, I've seen 47 people. Um, it's been crazy with the pandemic. It is just so how much are wanting. Um, out of those 47, 70% of the people I see are dealing with vision loss in their life. Then of that um, 70 percent, 51% of them are over the age of 57. And then 27% are 13 to uh, 40. So I am 
getting increasing amounts of people that are older and these their jobs have been established well some of these architects artists um lawyers doctors you name it it doesn't matter and so all of a sudden they're unable to do what they used to be able to do so and i'll wrap it up there so i think it's like with the the picture i like is when we're older it's like i see life as a jigsaw puzzle we put all these pieces together and we and we set our our life then when vision loss changes majorly or um somebody's diagnosed with a vision loss it's like a pair of mysterious hands comes out and grabs a hold of that puzzle and turns it upside down and goes okay let's put this all back together again and some of those pieces are still very very connected because it's um it's your foundation your personality there's all these different things but then it's putting all the other pieces in okay i'm done i'm sorry <laughs> yeah so you know we have some recent data through the aging and vision loss national coalition from california medicare and census data that indicate that older adults with vision loss are far more likely to have serious mental health problems than are other older adults. So this is not at all surprising um, to anyone. So um, how might, what do you think um, are the services in the mental health sphere that folks with vision loss most need and that we, you know, we're, we're advocating right now to increase the availability of services. What does our population need the most, do you think? Yeah, um, Jeff, this is Linda. Um, I think that I love support groups. Um, I facilitated so many support groups and that's, you know, how I got hired with VISTA and my whole start. I really feel Support groups are very powerful. I think even stepping it up and moving it to a counseling group, because I've done those for VISTA too, where it's not just focused on sharing of technology and that sort of thing, which is very important, but it's a different level. It really starts addressing, you know, the uh, emotional impact and what people are feeling on a, you know, uh, psychological level. Okay. And of course, more oh, therapists sorry. that are blind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Roque speaking. Yes, I concur with what Linda says. Uh, in my experience with the focus groups, uh, the feedback is that they want uh, a, a peer environment. They they want uh, facilitators, clinicians, therapists with lived experience. Um, that's pretty much across the board. They're, they they feel uncomfortable having to explain what their disability is to someone who doesn't have that sort of experience. And um, they don't feel there's a real connection. Um, peer groups, I think, are, are really powerful in the way they can heal, the way they can address um, intersectional issues. Um, so one of the things that, uh, once again, Access for All, um, uh, I, pro I uh, proposed and drafted another project, which is uh, 
a peer support group for people with disabilities, but um, with a little more cultural competency. So we're borrowing from the talk circle model. Um, and uh, that's uh, being implemented. Now it's in the, the, the vendor solicitation process, and that'll be rolling out later this year. So I think also with uh, SB803 and all the peer um, development uh, with uh, Medi-Cal, um, I'm also have been advocating for the subcategory of uh, disability peer specialist so that um, people with disabilities can actually have that certification, which they had prior to this new implementation that they're uh, uh, developing. They don't have, currently they don't have a disability peer specialist as a subcategory of peer specialist. For example, they'll, they have substance abuse or domestic violence, et cetera, um, but they don't currently have that. So I'm, I'm here advocating and rallying folks to speak up um, and uh, address this and um, really make this an issue uh, uh, to bring um, that uh, certification uh, specialty um, back and allow uh, folks with disabilities, with lived experience to be able to facilitate uh, peer support groups. I think it can be a real game changer for um, the peers because they can build Medi-Cal. So it's a pathway for uh, folks to um, uh, find employment uh, and also support in their local area because they can just form peer support groups. Instead of having to go through an organization, they would be certified and then they could initiate and uh, make uh, little support groups in their little areas, you know, wherever they happen to be, very hyper-local kind of situations. And uh, I think this would be really good. So I, once again, I do concur with uh, Linda. Well, that's great. I hope if our bill from California Council of Line AB 1999 on mental health services is successful, that uh, maybe we can have LA County as one of those Medi-Cal pilot projects and do some of the things that you are advocating. So, Absolutely. you know, we welcome everyone's help on that. What I think is an extremely important bill. Um, what do you think that mental health practitioners and public officials making decisions about funding and the provision of mental health services to people with vision loss? need to know with respect to meeting our needs? I know you've partly addressed it, but... Um, well, I think that... <clears throat> I feel that some of the issues... I think there needs to be more in-services, I, I believe, um, you know, that would help mental health practitioners um, to understand uh, the different emotions that people are feeling um, and, and what is a part of it. Um, I, I don't, I'm hoping I'm addressing your, your question. Um, for instance, there's a lot of role, re role reversals if it's later in life, if the man, um, you know, the, if the male loses his vision and he might've been doing, you know, different tasks or the female, then the other partner ends up having to take over and help or assist this person. So, and then it becomes more of a caregiving situation. So just even re in relationships, um, and there's a, 
a lot that does occur. Um, one thing I've noticed is it's kind of a sense of an identity crisis. Um, like, who am I? You know, I, people feel like they're a, a different person. And um, there's also this hypervigilance feeling on guard. Part of my, um, in my thesis research, most everybody that I interviewed um, rated uh, four or five on a Liker scale of one to five and five being extreme, they rated either four or five on hypervigilance and feeling on guard. Um, and then the avoidance, you know, there's a tendency to avoid. Um, and, and I feel that it's really meeting people where they're at. You know, I think even, even a person who has a clinician that, you know, doesn't have a sight impairment, um, can really meet a person where they're at and, and understand them and not just to always focus on the blindness, you know, to go beyond that and to see how things work together. Be if that answered your question. Before I uh, go to Roque for a second, let me follow up with you, Linda. What about the need for um, peer groups and, and supports uh, for family, for caregivers and, and other family members. What about that? Do we have, does any of oh, that exist? I, is it is it far too little or what's, what do you think? Far too little, far too little. Um, so when I work with um, my little kiddos, I definitely talk with the parents um, and helping the parents allow, I guess allow is a weird word, but you know, helping that parent to give the space for their child to make mistakes, maybe. Um, they don't have to be perfect or um, helping them to learn how to advocate for themselves. Um, and, and the parents are going through a lot. In, in my case, you know, my mom was extremely guilty. She felt so guilty, even though I have the recessive type of RP, which meant both my parents have the gene it just so happened to come together when i was born or you know conceived um but there's a lot of guilt for parents and i'm working with this other little girl that's uh well i shouldn't say little but 15 and she got diagnosed two years ago with uh conrad dystrophy and the parents fell apart in the ophthalmology office and now this young girl doesn't even want to talk to her parents because she's afraid that they're going to fall apart. So there is definitely a need, you know, for, um, you know, parents and caregivers to have a place to understand. Okay. Roque, uh, comments from you on either of these? Yes, uh, um, this is Roque speaking. Uh, Linda, thank you for those uh, uh, great points. I, I really echo many of the things that you were saying. And Jeff, can I ask you once again to please restate the question? Because I just sure. want to stay on track with what you were asking. Sure, absolutely. Um, the first question, the first really part of that is, and I can really expand it into one, is um, what do you think that we need that we need to be telling um, public officials and practitioners who make decisions and who impact the lives of 
um, people with vision loss that have mental health challenges? What do we think that we need to um, be telling those folks? And and the second part is, do we need to do more to provide um, caregiver support? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so in my experience, um, dealing with the LA County Department of Mental Health and the way they structure the programs and the budgeting, there are issues um, that I, they're, they are marginalizing. They're, they're funding, you know, um, the, a protected class, people with disabilities that have uh, ADA rights, and they're not putting the line items as priority line items. You know, they're, they're after the fact in the design of a project or a proposal. Then they look at it, and then there'll be like a 0.5 something in the in the budget, and we're talking multi-billion um, budgets. So they're they're fractions of fractions, and the design because it's a protected class with rights, um, it should be as a top line item. Meaning you don't design the project and put that at the end and think about it last, but you actually have to put it in the design. So meaning accessibility, accommodations, et cetera, cultural competencies. Um, that's why one of the things that we started doing at Access for All for the uh, Department of Mental Health was education. So I facilitated a couple of uh, uh, assistive technology workshops that, and I say workshops because they were immersive. It wasn't a, just a PowerPoint and just reading across some bullets. It was immersing the clinicians, the staff, into the environment of assistive technology, teaching them how to speak to each other in regards to dealing with people with disabilities, you know, what sort of language is appropriate when you're dealing with someone with vision loss, et cetera, you know, the first uh, person first language, all these various layers of cultural competencies that need to be designed into the projects, programs, and proposals at the top, not after the fact, and design an entire program and then have to retrofit. So um, it's uh, an approach of universal design, inclusive design, uh, such that from the initial um, outset, uh, these things are thought of, integrated. So some of the things that um, uh, I've also proposed uh, to the department is job development. So internally, um, two things. Um, their HR departments actively looking for people that fit uh, like particular profiles, meaning either they have American Sign Language, assistive technology backgrounds, that they are actually people with lived experience and have therapeutic um, uh, credentials. Also to encourage that pipeline where like within the, the, uh, the schools, in particular certain uh, junior colleges in LA, that have the specialty, certain universities, and to to in to let the the students know that there is a career path because a lot of people get certain tech uh, um, training, etc., and then they're just kind of floating, looking for work wherever they can grab it. So um, connecting those, making the linkages, getting the people to be in those places, and then uh, the other part of that in terms of uh, uh, personnel development is to give them those skills so that uh, they can actually, you know, move uh, up in their uh, pay scale. You know, like, so let's say 
uh, teaching uh, sign language, teaching them assistive technology, getting them orientation, mobilization skills, all those sorts of things can develop their, their current workforce since they already have uh, credentials, and then they can develop broader skill sets and um, they can work internally to develop. So those are some of the things that will be proposed. Um, and we've actively uh, been uh, working to increase budgets uh, so that uh, people with disabilities can design their own uh, programs. So um, just some good news, the uh, LA County Department of Mental Health has an underserved cultural communities uh, um, set of advisory uh, committees. So they're ethnically and linguistically um, based primarily. However, there are two uh, other, one, uh, other uh, committees that are, uh, one is the cultural competency committee, and then there's Access for All, the one for people with disabilities. They have increased the budget from uh, 200,000 fiscal to 350. So that allows for a little more development of projects that can go up to uh, a bid and uh, the, uh, the community can design um, what they want to design, which is a very grassroots, bottom-up from the people approach, which is really refreshing. And I, I, I do give a lot of credit to the director, uh, Dr. Uh, Sharon, uh, who unfortunately is stepping down due to health uh, reasons, but he was instrumental in really um, uh, making a, a great effort to get uh, community feedback into the process instead of a top-down clinician and uh, like a, a project uh, developer uh, perspective and really pushing for that and really looking at how the implementation um, and the, the proposal uh, uh, forming uh, process gets much more uh, uh, community feedback prior to the implementation. Uh, sorry for all the uh, technical details, but. Um, okay, so before I open it up to the panel and Andrea, if you are, if you are back on, I'm not sure whether you are on or not, but I'll recognize you first. Um, before I do that, any final comments from either of you with respect to um, anything that's been said this morning or that, that you haven't been able to say and that you would like to? One quick thing about the caregivers. Um, this is a, a, a huge issue. There's a lot of undocumented people being exploited in the caregiver network as it is now. They're, they're under, you know, they're underpaid for sure and uh, very little benefits, et cetera. So I, I know there's a lot of movement in that area to kind of um, uh, restore justice uh, and uh, make it a much more healthy environment for everyone involved. It's a very tough um, uh, uh, position. I just wanted to say that I just really appreciate everybody's attention to this issue and that it's really coming to light because it is just so valuable to be really recognizing this. And Roque, I just admire what you're doing. It's just amazing work. And um, so thank you, Jeff and Alice and everybody being here today. We have a hand, you say? We do have a hand. Valerie? I'm really enjoying this presentation. I want to thank you both uh, for uh, being here today. I have two questions. One is, what percentage of those that are visually impaired that go to work are successful in keeping their jobs? And my second question is, what percentage of visually impaired people, including the blind, 
have dysfunctional families or suffer abuse in their families. Thank you. Boy, I don't have that data at the top of my head. I mean, we know the unemployment data is around 70%, and that's usually the statistic that's quoted. Um, the second one I can't say, but we also know that among people with disabilities, the there is a heightened degree of dysfunctional families uh, that are created. But I don't, I don't have statistics. I don't know if either you do. Those are pretty good questions, yeah. though, Valerie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have, yeah, I don't have the statistics, but um, I think it's uh, parents learning how to um, work with their children, um, just like in, in any case. But um, I'll just give an example. Um, my young kiddo, um, you know, very established family, but the issue was, um, the father was very, um, really putting a lot of pressure on his daughter. And this then increased her anxiety and her depression, um, actually yelling at her basically when, and, and this was during pandemic. And so she had to be on the, the Zoom call. It was muted. While her yelled at um, to do a better job, but she was doing the best she could, and she actually was doing great. And she, so she had to put on this, this smiley face because she was on the camera. And so it's just, it, I think it's just, there just needs to be some education about, um, you know, and these are very good people. It's just it, the pandemic, it just created so much tension. Um, anyway, I don't know what the statistics are, though. Yeah, it's funny. Every culture um, has different ways of handling things. I remember an instance in Sacramento maybe 15 years ago. The years blurred in my mind now, but this young woman was accepted to UC Berkeley, and she was going to be an accounting business-type major, and her father wanted to make sure that she was going to do well, so he actually moved with her to Berkeley, uh, and lived there, and I suspect that hindered her college experience a little bit, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but you know, so you just never know. And she was obviously a blind yeah. person. I didn't say that, but she was. So, anyway, you just don't know. Um, hey, this is it okay. Um, you know, there's some anecdotal things that I, I've come across. I've definitely heard about the 70% unemployment across the board for people with disabilities. It's really tough. Um, however, what I've also heard is that once they, a disabled person gets a job, they retain it. Um, and I think one of the challenges too is HR departments and they're uh, not really understanding what the, you know, uh, let's say reasonable accommodation, you know, uh, for people with disabilities is what that entails. They're like, is there, you know, what the risk factors are, or, you know, are they going to get sued if this person, you know, has a, an accident on the job, et cetera, all those sorts of things. So I think that part of it, uh, as has been stated, is education about what, you know, reasonable accommodations are in the workplace for people with disabilities, to really understand that, to have sort of um, that, uh, you know, part of the training 
you know, when you get onboarded for many companies, you go through an HR process. And that I think that is one of the missing components is that they should really look at how reasonable accommodations um, are managed within the company and how the person with disabilities goes about that process. And uh, I know for many companies, it's a learning curve because it might be the first time they've ever had to deal with someone with a disability. You know, what does it mean to have assistive technology? What kind of accommodations? You know, what's the safety issues? There's stairs here at this facility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's one thing for sure that um, I think could help and um, uh, uh, provide a better pathway for employment is that component of education about reasonable accommodations. The other uh, uh, question, Valerie, I, I just really don't have any data on. It's a, it's a very good question, but uh, maybe for another panel. <laughs> good topic for you. Do we have any other hands? Yes, we do. Next is Robert Acosta. Um, I'm a strange bird here. I'm congenitally blind. And I want to say to Roque, is it, yeah. um, that I think it was, that as a disabled guy, I was a retired, I was a school teacher of sighted children, the first one with LA Unified. And 37 years later, I walked out on my own. They didn't have to carry me out by the handles. I loved it. <laughs> and it was great. So we, we do try to hold on to our jobs. My question is, two of them. One, did you guys who were losing your sight, yes, go to family. My family was very good. I never had it. So they had to deal with, you know, we went to the eye doctor who mm -hmm. said, look at my nose, look at my nose. Is that if I could, I wouldn't be here. You know, the, the eye doctor is a mechanic. <laughs> he knows nothing. The ones I dealt with about rehab healers, we did it all as congenitally blind guys. My questions yeah. are, did you consider... Roque and Linda, as you lost your sight, going to the orientation center for the blind to learn to be blind. It ain't, it's not the greatest. I don't, I'd rather be a millionaire, but you can learn how to do it and, and, and get family out of a family's well-meaning many times, but they don't know about it either. And the second question, Linda, finding a therapist who understands blindness. How do we do that? I've had a few that didn't know blindness from anything. I mean, it was awful. Some were outstanding, not therapy, but guidance counselors. Maybe I need therapy. A lot of my friends say I do. Thank you. Sound <laughs> <laughs> good to me. Um. <laughs> you sound like you're in really good, good mental health. <laughs> um, just a quick uh, uh, story on my side. When I started losing my sight, I went to the Braille Institute. Oh, God. Um, but I wasn't legally blind yet, you know, but I was really suffering the impact of mobility issues. You know, I, I was having much more trouble, et cetera. And my mom uh, took me there and they said, um, you know, you don't quite fit the criteria because I brought my medical, you know, uh, uh, ophthalmological uh, examination, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't, I wasn't blind enough to get services. So that impacted me even more and my mom even more. And so I remember going to a very kind uh, ophthalmologist and explaining what I, what had happened at my next eye exam. And um, she was like, well, what what is like your worst, like if when you are most impaired, like when can you not see? 
And, and, and I said, well, you know, when I'm in really bright light, I get this kind of whiteout experience. You know, like it's common with a lot of folks mm -hmm. with RP. It's too bright. And then I get a whiteout experience. I can't see. So she said, well, just stare out that window for about 20 minutes. I'll come back and then I'll do your eye test. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> I love it. Love it too. That's cool. Yeah. Um, the orientation center for the blind. Um, I, I think for me, it was really emotional. I, I was really struggling with, um, what am I going to do with my life? I know I'm losing my eyesight. Um, and it was more like I really needed to do the emotional piece. And then as my vision got worse, I definitely um, used a cane, um, even though I didn't want to, but I wanted to get a guide dog. So that's the reason I did it. But, you know, so I kind of piecemealed it. I didn't go because I, I, at that point, I just wasn't ready to do uh, the, the concrete um, skill building. I, I really needed to learn how to live with this um, emotionally. Um, and I'll never forget the first time I touched a white cane. It went through my hand so fast. <laughs> like, I didn't want to identify with it. But, you know, obviously I have now. Um, but with finding a therapist, yeah. so there's a couple ways you can do this is that. Um, there's uh, in your area, you might have your Braille Institute, the Lighthouse for the Blind, the Society for the Blind, the Vista Center, Lions, whatever it is. A lot of times they might know of somebody. So I get referrals quite often um, through different centers. Um, then uh, one thing you can do uh, is Say you do find somebody that is um, living the experience um, in, in a, is a therapist or clinician and you have insurance, you can request for a single case agreement um, if that therapist is willing to do it, even though that therapist may not provide. So I provide for Medi-Cal and for the Veterans Administration. However, I get single case agreements through, say, Blue Shield, um, not Medicare, but Blue Shield um, and such different ones because of the specialty, because they don't have a therapist that addresses that. So you can always go through your insurance also and find a therapist and interview this therapist. You know, talk to them about what you're going through what, um, and ask them what, uh, are they cognitive behavioral therapists? Uh, are they um, psychoanalysts or uh, solution-based therapists? It's just really ask them. And, and the whole thing is about you, not about the therapist's agenda. If that therapist cannot meet you where you're at and address what you're going through, it's okay to change. Okay. Do we have any other hands? Oh my gosh, we have seven hands. Okay, raised. so let's try to ask questions quickly so we can get a few of them in and quick answers too, if you guys can. Got it. Okay. Okay, Roger, I think. Roger. Oh, 
I I am probably a, a unusual in this crowd. I'm unusual in most every crowd. Um, and that's really the story of my life. Um, so I'm 80 years old now, and I was uh, born blind. And when I think back on my life, especially my early life, uh, the first word that comes to mind is alone. Um, I went to the Idaho State School for the Deaf and Blind, which was uh, which might as well have been, uh, you know, a, a prison or something. It was not. There was nobody there that I had anything in common with except blindness, uh, including the staff. I, I don't think any of the staff were qualified for what they were doing, and. Uh, it was pretty miserable, and uh, actually, i i got my I got my own cane. The school didn't want me to have a cane, but I got one. Hmm. Roger, so, do you have a question for our panelists? No, I think I know more than they do. Well, maybe um, you do, <laughs> Roger. You know quite a lot. I do, Roger. <laughs> but I do want to give other people a chance to. So, but anyway, I just I just wanted to point out that the pipe, I. I um, I don't think I really got into a group that I was comfortable with and uh, knew where I was in society or whatever until I was probably a junior in high school. And uh, I think that, you know, I've been watching other people and I believe that the best, the best people that I've seen in terms of their uh, adjustment and their happiness and so forth are some of these folks that have some combination of of uh, public education and some sort of blindness um, group, like I'm thinking, like the people here in Santa Clara County, the Susan Glasses mm-hmm. of the world. Um, so they right. have, they don't, they're not, they're not just 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 uh, in blind groups, and they're not the only blind person in the world. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Roger. And if, if, if you don't listen to what Roger has to say, then you're really missing out because he knows his <laughs> stuff. All right, next hand. All right, the next hand is Regina. Thank you so much. Okay. So my uh, question is really related. So as someone that has been blind most of my life, how can I best support people who are losing their vision because it's different and I know that possibly inadvertently I have done things that maybe didn't support someone so well and also I've heard in workshops where there's a lot of sort of judgment that comes through probably unintentional from us that have lived with it so long thanks I just wanted to share that um there's a uh, a big push for the uh peer uh, certification trainings. And so they're offering a lot of peer training uh, courses. I'm taking a refresher course, you know, to be grandparented in for my uh, uh, certification. But those courses are really phenomenal in the scope of what they cover, you know, everything from ethics to law to um, uh, like uh, how to uh, speak, um, facilitate, uh, Etc. So, and they're available and, and they're they're free. A lot of them. So, um, 
I highly recommend those just to get some great real grounding. Linda. Yeah. And, and I just think the best thing you can do is just be a very good listener. And one thing that I've had to learn is not to always put my experience onto another person's experience and be the container for their experience. And so it's just really meeting a person where they're at and to remember that it is their experience, even if they, it's different. Um, and, and I just really feel that's really important to um, be the container and be a, just a good listener. Okay, I think we'll have time for one more, and I think this will have to be the last one. Unfortunately, I'm terribly sorry to have to do that because... This All has right. been a great panel. Laura Hernandez. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for this presentation. Um, I I really enjoyed uh, what Linda said about uh, PTSD in our community. And my question is, are there any type of initiatives that are being done to, um, to focus on the higher education institutions um, to connect uh, services with students with disabilities and the counseling centers on campuses. Because um, as we know, you know, traveling like through school, either and under either getting an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, um, we have to go through a lot of obstacles as far as accessibility. But it's also a mental strain on us to um, just like with any other student. And a lot of times when we go to services for students with disabilities, the counselors there are more geared to counsel for accessibility needs. So they send us yeah. over to counseling centers. And in the counseling centers, most of them have not like dealt with anybody who is blind or low vision. So the counseling kind of gets stuck on their experiences of what they would do if they lost vision. And that doesn't really help us <laughs> to right. navigate right. The, the frustrations that we deal with, um, especially in, in post-grad um, situations. So right. my question right. is that, is there a way to, to link that um, for students? Thank you. That's, a, that's really good. Yeah. I know one thing that um, I, I, I really appreciate you for bringing this up because one thing when I was going through my school, um, they, I, my master's, we did um, diversity training and they asked me, I was doing a class. I taught a class to uh, clinicians, you know, potential clinicians um, about what it's like. And I went through all of it and that needs to happen more. And it does need to be provided. So I don't you know, know if either uh, Jessica Marquez or Catherine Schmidt-Wick are listening, but if you are, maybe you can communicate with the CCB students on that question, because that's a great question to which I have question. no answer. So I want to thank my panelists, Roque and Linda. I want to thank all of you who asked questions and made very cogent comments, and I hope that we continue to to explore this issue and remember uh, when you're called upon to help us advocate for more services for people who have mental health challenges and who have vision loss. So thank you very much and I'll turn it back over to Rob. Uh, Lisa, Rob. Okay, Rob. Sorry, Rob. That's <laughs> all right. All yours. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for what I thought was a great panel. And one of the things that came to my mind was uh, when I was, uh, when my dad was in his late seventies, he, he said, gee, I just wish I could have, uh, you know, helped you to found a way to, to enable you to see, you know, and I kind of said, well, it's all right, dad. Now I realize that uh, as I get older, I think I can understand his point of view now, you know, because we are limited. You know, we're told that blindness is just a nuisance and that whole Federation philosophy. I think it's uh, a little more than just a nuisance. But anyway, a good panel, and I really was glad to hear that. Is Lisa available? So are you well, ready for a door prize? Time for a door prize. Okie dokie. We're going to do another $25 Amazon gift card. Uh, provided by the Fresno chapter. And the winner is Diane Harms. Congratulations. Hey, from our Silicon Valley Council of the Blind chapter. Way to go, Diane. Your just been racking up the door prizes. Apparently so, yeah. yeah. That's that right. Means that, that we had a lot of Silicon Valley members that, that registered, right? Yeah. I think Beautiful. so. Beautiful. I think so, yeah. So just a reminder, everybody, don't forget to visit our exhibitors. Uh, check the list that Andrea sent out uh, a day or two ago. And uh, let's see if we can give them some good business. They're taking their time and energy to, to be with us, so... So please take advantage and visit with them. Uh, boy, this next panel is something that's dear to my heart. Uh, and, and I know Gene and, and BZ are both uh, on, ready to go. Uh, independent travel keeps getting harder and harder. Boy, I'll say I had a situation the other day. The Uber vehicle dropped me off a little bit in unexpected spot. And, uh, geez, I couldn't find the darn ticket machine at the, at the train station. I had to call Be My Eyes to uh, get help. And, and it's a place I've been to many times before. So I guess as we get older, our hearing gets a little bit diminished. And, well, we don't do quite as well as we used to do. So, so Gene, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll turn it over to you and uh, let you get this next panel started. For those who are unfamiliar with myself, my name is Gene Lozano. I'm the chair of the Committee on Access and Transportation and a member of the Conference and Convention Planning Committee. For many years, both committees have heard from the membership that um, it's, getting, it's getting harder to um, independently travel in the ever-increasing complexities of the built environment. And that can be the interior of buildings, which like elevators. Um, we're used to push buttons uh, to operate buttons, uh, buttons to the call buttons uh, to operate uh, the elevators to come to your floor. And complexity, it's now in recent time is uh, destination-based elevators. And I've heard that there's somebody in the elevator industry thinking that we everyone should use iPads 
to uh, to call a elevator to the floor and not have any push buttons. Our focus this morning is to do with exterior um, challenges in the built environment, and this is some, um, something that we have um, addressed in our last convention when we had two different presentations, one uh, by Donna Salaberger, who, who is an O&M specialist who was helping us understand how to assess um, when it's safe to make a crossing at an unsignalized crossing. And then we had another presentation from Dr. Eugene Orkham, who was talking about how we can uh, influence the yielding behavior of drivers. This morning is the next part of that series of what field development and modifications can be made to the build environment. And I'm very honored this morning to introduce a very good friend, colleague, and an ally on matters related to making the built environment more accessible for people with vision disabilities. Our presenter is Dr. Billy Louise Benson, uh, known to many of us as BZ. She is an orientation mobility specialist, who also has a PhD in experimental psychology. Um, for more than 40 years, Beezy uh, has conducted human factors research work um, in the areas of wayfinding and mobility for people with vision disabilities. More specifically, he has done uh, at least 30 uh, human factors research projects in the areas of large print, uh, tactile, electronic, and audible signage, tactile maps, Visual contrast, accessible pedestrian signals, detectable warnings, uh, the accessibility of roundabouts, and a variety of electronic wayfinding technologies, such as one of the earlier technologies you might recall that she has done a lot of work in, which was talking signs. Um, as a result of Abizi's uh, research work, um, there have been many changes that are uh, that have resulted in the um, changes into documents such as the ANSI A117.1 2009 standards for um, making accessible and usable the, uh, for buildings and facilities. U.S. Department of Transportation's ADA transportation facilities 
standards. The um, um, the uh, Federal Highway Administration manual uniform traffic control devices, and there's and, and more recently um, has been the uh, the U.S. Access Board's draft ADA accessibility um, provisions for the uh, making the public right-of-way accessible. Um, and additionally, additional, uh, BZ has uh, published at least 80 articles as well as uh, numerous reports and chapters for uh, books. Finally, um, Dr. Benson is um, the founder of Accessibility Design, for Accessible Design for the Blind, um, which is a company involved in human factors research and consultation in making uh, the built environment more accessible to people with um, disabilities. Um, and she is currently the company's director of research. It gives me a group, uh, I wish to again um, say that we have been very fortunate to have uh, Easy as a longtime friend and ally. Uh, many of the changes that have improved our accessibility in the built environment is due because of her work. And she is going to be bringing to you right now a reminder of this and going over the strategies uh, in our school uh, inventory of how to, we find the crosswalks, how to make a straight crossing. And on top of that, making um, some suggestions as to environmental modifications, which can be technologies that her research has found that has been very helpful. So I wish to ask everyone to give her uh, a warm virtual hand of applause. Thank you very much. Daisy, it's yours. Thank you for that introduction, Jean. Jean and I go back a long ways, I think maybe about 30 years. We first met at uh, an ANSI meeting um, when we were trying to get uh, some standards for detectable warnings at that time. And I remember Gene's support in that. And, um, and also Gene at that time was advocating for accessible ATMs. And I didn't think that there's a chance that we would get that in the ANSI because there wasn't an accessible ATM. And normally they're talking about things that exist. Um, but by golly, he got them to accept that. And look where that's gone now. Um, but one of the things that, that, that was important to me at that time, and it has remained important to me in all of the advocacy that I do, um, is is making sure that, that what I'm promoting is really consistent with, with what blind people are wanting. 
Um, and uh, when I have the opportunity to work with people from, from ACB, I welcome that chance. And I really welcome this opportunity to be with CCB today. Um, I'm, I'm uh, with you remotely from Fairbanks, Alaska, where I live in a one-room cabin. Um, it's called a dry cabin here. That means that I have to haul my water and I have an outhouse. Um, and um, it's really good for me to, after most of my life living with plumbing and in a more conventional way, to discover how happy I can be in just one room. And um, this is good learning for, for an 84-year-old. Anyhow, I'm really happy to talk with you this morning about how independent travel keeps getting harder. And one of the things I, I want to emphasize is that it really is getting harder. You know, if you used to be able to cross a particular street easily and you can't anymore, it may be because the, something about the environment has changed. It's now possible to change the signalization from a remote uh, transportation center. You don't, nobody has to come to the intersection even to change the timing on something. Um, so you may have no idea uh, and no real way to know that uh, a signal has been changed. And there are many very complex kinds of signalization these days. And so if something doesn't seem right to you, it seems like there's a change, well, probably there is. And one thing that you might try doing is finding out who's in control of that intersection. And that may take you a few phone calls. So have patience with it because uh, you know, who controls what in the traffic control world um, can be quite, quite confusing. But eventually you'll get there and talk to the person that controls that intersection and say, you know, you used to be able to do this. I'm having trouble now. Did something change? And find out. Um, but let me go and get on to talking about um, how to find hard to find crosswalks or bus stops. Um, particularly, um, it's hard to find crosswalks at roundabouts and channelized turn lanes and what are now referred to as categorically innovative intersections. And these are like roundabouts multiplied many times over. Um, and there are many kinds of them. And fortunately, um, how you deal with them and finding a crossing is the same. Um, so I can talk about displaced left turn intersections or displaced left turn interchanges or restricted crossing U-turn intersections or median U-turn intersections or a quadrant roadway intersection or a double crossover diamond interchange. And you don't really have to know any about any of those. The strategy for finding the crosswalk is the same as it would be for a roundabout. Uh, unless, unless there is some cue that has been installed or you've traveled around about enough to have sort of identified your own cue, um, the best way to find a crosswalk at a roundabout or channelized turn lane at an and it applies to any, of, any one of these in innovative intersections is to trail your outside guideline, whether it's a grass line, you've got something between you and the road or you're tra trailing the curb and you're really close to traffic. So you want to be extra cautious, but trail outside and be looking for a curb ramp or a detectable warning. And uh, that 
will indicate that there is a pedestrian crossing there. So trail the outside, look for the ramp, look for the detectable warning, and you should be in a crosswalk. Um, I know many, many of you probably prefer to travel away from the outside guideline, and, and that's safer, especially if there's nothing between you and the cars. At roundabouts, um, roundabout, the roundabout guide for used for construction says that there should be something between the pedestrian and, and the traffic at a roundabout, but that's not always true. Um, so sometimes you'll just have to trail along the curb line, listening carefully for traffic that may be traveling awfully close to you um, to find the uh, curb ramp and the detectable warning. And then that should pick, pick, put you in the crosswalk, uh, kind of no matter which of these challenging places uh, you're trying to find the crosswalk. Um, I'd suggest for roundabouts and innovative intersections that you really get help with familiarization. For the roundabout, it's really helpful to understand how roundabouts work, and I'm not going to try to talk about that today. Um, but um, but try to get somebody to explain to you how they work. They're really not terrifying, especially if it's a single lane roundabout. One of the things about roundabouts and also about these crazy innovative intersections is that for all of them, you're only crossing traffic coming from one way at a time. And normally it's going to be coming from your left, although in the innovative intersections, it might be coming from the right, but it's only going to come from one way until you have a, um, a refuge or you're on the other side. Anyhow, um, Another comment just is that that both the Access Board and Federal Highway are now recognizing that if a roundabout or the same thing would go for an innovative intersection, if it, if it's two or more lanes, there should be some kind of a signal where there's a crossing. So for every crossing at a roundabout where there is more than one lane of traffic, there should be some kind of, of uh, a signal or a beacon. And it'll be pedestrian actuated, and there ought to be an APS there. And if there isn't, you should ask for one. Um, so finding bus stops, they can be hard, too, especially if they're mid-block. Um, the same strategy as looking for hard-to-find crosswalks will generally work. Trailing the outside, maybe the curb line, uh, and looking for a ramp or a detectable warning. Um, it won't always be there, um, but that but that's a good strategy anyhow to to try for finding uh, mid block bus stops. I'm going to talk a little bit later about floating bus stops that some of you may be quite concerned about. Um, but right now, I'm going to talk about some possible environmental modifications for help finding crosswalks and bus stops, and that is the use of uh, a a, what's called generically attack the walking surface indicator. And you probably are all familiar with the bumps or truncated domes that are usually at uh, curb ramps now and uh, edges of transit platforms. Those are called detectable warnings. And that is one kind of what generically is called the tactile walking surface indicator. So tactile, you can feel it on your walking surface, 
So with your feet or your cane, um, tactile walking surface indicator. So any of these are, are intended to do that. And uh, the, the truncated domes or detectable warnings are, are one kind, and they're the only kind that has been widely used in the U.S. to date. Um, but there's another kind that is widely used in many other countries, and that is raised flat top bars. And uh, they're parallel, ranged parallel to each other. And sometimes these are, are referred to as tactile direction indicators because they indicate the direction you should go. Um, so they're, they're a second kind of a tactile walking surface indicator. Uh, and they're raised about a quarter of an inch, same as, as the domes. The bars are about an inch wide and it's about two inches between them. California, uniquely in the U.S., has specifications for the the uh, tactile direction indicator, the raised bars, and requires their use in subway stations to indicate where train doors open and um, So these, these I know are used in, in, in BART and Caltrans stations, LA Metro, I believe. Um, the width of the installation may vary a little bit across uh, different jurisdictions. But the, t- the typical use of these, rather than to indicate where a train door would open, um, is to be able to follow them in the direction you're going. Uh, when they're installed and the idea is to, to create a path to follow, maybe across a plaza, or some wide open space, um, a mezzanine in a big transit station, maybe. Um, the bars go in the direction that you're going. And the installation is usually 12 inches wide. So if you're looking for it, it's, it's, not, it's not real wide. There's a possibility you could step over it. Um, so you want to slow down, look carefully. It might continue for quite a long way. Um, it's fine to cross the raised bars. There's no indication of a warning. They don't, don't warn of anything. They say, you can safely walk here. Usually you can walk on either side. One side might not have as much room as the other. But usually it's safe to walk on either side. They should never be used to indicate a warning. But there's a lot of misuse of them in one particular situation that I just want to call to your attention because it may be happening where you are. And um, that is where bicycles have what's called a protected bike lane that's up on the sidewalk. So it's on the same level that you're walking on. And there is the recognition that there has to be some kind of um, a, a delineator between the pedestrian part of the sidewalk and the bicycle part of the sidewalk. And it needs to be detectable to cane and to underfoot. And it needs to have a special meaning that lets you know there are bikes on the other side. Um, But unfortunately, uh, no really satisfactory delineator had been found until some research that I did in San Francisco two years ago. Some of you may have participated in that, in fact. Um, And so jurisdictions have been using the the bars, the tactile direction indicator, between pedestrians and bikes on sidewalk level. 
Um, that gives a really wrong message um, because you're supposed to, the, the bars are supposed to be a safe space. You're supposed to be able to go on either side. So they need a different um, tactile walking surface to say, no, there are bikes here. If you come to this, don't cross it. You're in danger of bikes on the other side. Now, I'm not going to debate whether uh, bikes and pets should be at the same level. That's probably the ship has sailed on that. Although if you get in early enough in planning, um, and, and I would encourage you to, to get involved in uh, travel planning, transit engineering, travel, transportation planning in your jurisdiction, your jurisdiction and uh, you may be able to get them to put bikes at a lower level. Um, but a lot, a lot of jurisdictions are really wanting to put them at sidewalk level um, for a variety of reasons. And um, so I'll talk to you in a little bit what really should be there. But um, more on the raised bars. Um, they can be used to locate a crosswalk or a bus stop. And also to give you an excellent cue for aligning where you don't have other cues or they're misleading. And if they're used that way, instead of being with the bars themselves going in the direction of travel, the bars are turned. Now, first I'll, sit, I'll, I'll stop for a minute and say uh, where they're installed. If the intent is to like, locate a crosswalk, crosswalk or bus stop they'll go across the sidewalk so as you walk down the sidewalk you should come to this surface and it'll be a raised bar surface but the, the bars will be oriented um well i would say the bars themselves are oriented in the direction if you're continuing to walk on the sidewalk but if if your intent is to find that crosswalk that they're marking or that bus stop that they're marking you want to turn and walk toward the street at that point. And the reason those, the two reasons those bars are turned differently and, and you know, that not as comfortable to follow, your cane will tend to get stuck in them some if you're trying to follow them with your cane. Um, two, two reasons. The advantage of that, from your point of view, is that they can give you a really secure alignment cue. Because the, the way they're installed, and they're, they're two feet wide all the way across the sidewalk and coming down to near the curb. And that whole strip and the bars themselves are aligned perpendicular to the direction you're traveling across the crosswalk. That means that you square off with them. I don't know whether uh, <laughs> in O&Mers are, are teaching people to square off with a curb anymore. Um, their curbs are so seldom quite uh, perpendicular to the direction you want to cross now with widely rounded corners. Um, but squaring off with these bars is much like squaring off with a curb. You get the bar under both feet. You make sure that it feels the same under both feet. And you're going to have good alignment in the direction of the crosswalk. Maybe traffic is going off in a little different direction. Maybe the, the um, curb ramp is pointing out in the middle of the intersection. But the raised bars are there 
to give you a secure whale alignment. And if they weren't turned perpendicular to the direction you're going to cross so you can square off on them, you wouldn't be able to get as good a line. Uh, Psychophysically, it's not possible for people to align as well with something that is going kind of in the axis of the foot. Um, So going, you know, heel to toe as going across the foot. And that's why the bars are turned that way. Incidentally, it's also much easier for people with mobility impairments, especially if they use wheeled devices. Uh, If they're continuing on that sidewalk, then it's kind of a non-issue to go across them. If they were turned the other way, every time they crossed them, it would be, which can be very annoying. In some cases can throw people into a spasm and be be quite painful. And so you can imagine the hue and cry we'd have from people who are mobility impaired if this started to be used widely. And, but I think that probably um, it is going to be increasingly used and that probably we won't have a lot of challenge from the mobility impaired community. I would expect some kickback in in some locations. Uh, It certainly was not easy to get requirements for the detectable warnings because there was a lot of opposition amongst mobility impaired people. Um, So we want to make this uh, have the minimal effect on them at the same time, letting you know where there's a crosswalk, mid-block, say, or a bus stop, um, and giving a secure way to a line that you know is going to point you in the right direction. Um, sometimes these are can be used at a corner crossing where maybe, maybe it's a T intersection and you're crossing from the stem of the T up to the top. So there's no real parallel traffic. Um, that you can get an alignment cue from or or to help to maintain your direction once you get started. Um, so it's really important to have a good cue to, to square off with so you do get a good line. Um, and um, in that case, it only takes a two-foot square of these bars. Again, the bars arranged perpendicular to your direction of travel across the crosswalk so that you can square off with them under both feet. Um, can just be a two foot square of them and they'll be near the end of the domes on the side away from the center of the intersection. Um, so how do you align and maintain your heading, your direction of travel when there isn't any parallel traffic? Well, <laughs> I can't, I can't suggest ways that are foolproof. I can suggest things that are likely to increase your ability to get across straight. Um, Idling perpendicular traffic may be a good cue, um, but not a certain cue because the stop bar might not always be parallel with the crosswalk. It is much more often than not, but it may not always be. And so if you're in a situation in which you don't have anything parallel that you can use for, for direction. Listen for, for idling traffic on the street that you're going to cross. Um, if you have somebody that you can confirm with that um, the, the uh, idling traffic is in the direction of the crosswalk, 
then that that can be helpful confirmation that yeah you can use that cue and it's pretty likely to get you in a good alignment to start crossing another another thing that you can try is using the straight part of the curb that is on the side of the curb ramp that's farthest from the center of the intersection. Some of you maybe have been taught that in O&M. I know that some people are teaching that now. And this may be perpendicular to the street you want to cross. That is, it may be in line with the, the crosswalk, but it also may not be at some intersections. And so Again, that's a good thing to confirm that the curb ramp is, in fact, perpendicular to the crosswalk. Um, so if, if there's somebody, tra- another pedestrian traveling beside you, you get on that bit, bit of curb and, and square off. And, and then you can, you can point to ask, you know, am, am I headed in the direction of the crosswalk? Um, and... You know, they may say, no, it's a little more to the right. And so you shift and see how the curb feels under your feet at that point. And if this is a crossing that you're going to make regularly, then you'll you'll want to kind of memorize that angle under your feet that you want to establish to get a good, good alignment. Um, another thing is that you can help, have somebody help you to find some physical cue at the crossing that can work to give you a good heading. Maybe there's a, a an electrical or traffic control device on that corner that um, has a side that is perpendicular to the crossing direction. You'll always get a better direction if you can find something to square off with than align with. Squaring off with means it's it's behind you or it's something under your feet that goes across both feet um, rather than something that's beside you like a grass line or a, what's called a returned curb. Sometimes they make curb ramps that don't have a flare. They have just have a curb turning in beside them. That is normally going to be in the in line with the direction of the crosswalk, but it's really hard to get a good heading from that. Um, that's just not something that, that our body alignment allows us to do very well. So you try to get something you can square off with always. You might not have anything. Use something you can get beside. Another thing that I want you to know about that is seldom seen still. Uh, It has existed now for about four years, um, but for whatever reason is not yet being used very much, but I want you to know about it so that you can advocate for it. And that is an audible APS beacon. And it's like a regular APS when you use it uh, in terms of of the push button and the sound locator tone coming from the push button and the the walk indication coming from the push, push button. But the thing that makes it a beacon is that there are loudspeakers that are mounted up on top of the visual pedestrian signal at each end of the crosswalk. And if, if this is, is programmed to give you an audible beacon, which any, any of the, um, the manufacturers of accessible pedestrian signals now can provide, um, when, when you actuate that, you're going to 
you know, you'll, you'll come up to it. You'll push it. You're hearing the lo- locator tone. You push it. It says wait and may say wait to cross Howard at Grand or something like that. Um, and then you'll hear walk sign is on to cross Howard at Grand. Um, so you start crossing and then you know, you don't get that walk signal very long. It's only four to second, seven seconds long. So you may not have time to get more than out into the first lane as you cross. And But then, you know, where your uh, APS changes, goes back to the locator tone, or it may, may go to a countdown. And there are good reasons why it's not supposed to go to a countdown. It's supposed to go to locator tone. At that time, you will hear a loud locator tone that comes from the loudspeaker on the other side of the other end of the crosswalk only, not from the end where you are. It only comes from out in front of you. So you can really home in on it and keep on homing in all all the way across once per second. Loud tone. It's only going to come when you when you. Uh, actuate the button with with a, a long button press. You know you should get in the habit when you push the push button of always holding it for a second or more. Then you're going to get whatever that signal's got, um, and uh, it could be more time even for crossing. Um, it may just be increased volume, but if you're having trouble um, getting across the street straight, maybe it's a diagonal crossing. Maybe it's an incredibly wide street. An audible beacon can really, really help. It gives you a sound right in front of you to head for uh, while you're out in the middle of the street. And um, so that the audible APS beacon is something that can really solve your problem if you're having trouble going straight across the street. And so it's something you should ask for, especially if there's already an audible signal there. Can you make an audible beacon? It's pretty simple. doesn't cost very much money if you've already got an APS there. Another thing that is used uh, somewhat um, is a tactile guide strip next or within within the inside the crosswalk. It may be close to one line. It may be in the middle of the crosswalk, but it's inside the crosswalk anyhow. And you find that and just follow it with your cane. Well, how do you know if there's one there? Usually, you would be able to hear cars cross it. Um, And that can indicate not only that, oh, there seems to be something here I can follow, I think, um, and and where it is. And so you can look for it with your cane. Um, So I, I hope you're following me on all of this. I'm not giving you too much all at once here. Because I want to talk about bike lanes next. You know, bike advocacy is so strong that pedestrians are kind of an afterthought in a lot of designs. And this is really regrettable. So many people who are in in planning or they may have a, a special position within your jurisdiction that's called the ped bike coordinator. Oftentimes these are really bike people and they're going to emphasize uh, making it safer and easier for bikes and pedestrians seem like kind of an afterthought. Um, but most commonly 
still bikes are in the street and they're usually in the lane closest to the curb and where bikes are supposed to be is indicated only by paint so you know bicyclists are saying we don't feel safe that way nothing between us and cars um we want something between us and cars we want protected bike lanes is the buzzword protected bike lanes okay protected for who not for people who are blind that's for sure um and so we have protected bike lanes for cyclists or they sometimes are called separated bike lanes and these are a number of designs in which bikes are separated from cars by something or other more than just paint um, to protect cyclists. Now, bicyclists come in all kinds, like blind people do, and some of them are confident and skilled and feel perfectly safe traveling in the street with traffic, and others are kids who are learning to bike, and mom's with them trying to get them to the park safely, and um, not confident, not feeling comfortable traveling out in the street right together with traffic. And so there is a big movement for, for separating peds from bikes. Um, so if it's done when the bikes are down at street level, then there's usually a relatively narrow median that separates them from the road. This means that if you're going to cross the street and you've got bikes traveling in the street near the curb uh, when you cross the street you first cross that bike lane could be one or two way more of them are one than two way but it can be two way um, then that median should always be wide enough for you to wait on when you make that crossing street crossing and you're crossing the bike lane um, you should always have a detectable warning where that crossing begins. There may or may not actually be a curb ramp because they may have raised the crossing in the bike lane. This is so that it slows down, bikes down, makes them more likely to yield. At least that's the theory. There's no research that says it actually does that. It also means it's easier for people with a mobility impairment. They don't have to go down and come up again. Uh, to cross the street. Um, but as far as you're concerned, there should be a detectable warning there indicating that this is where you cross. And uh, if there isn't a curb ramp, it means you're just going to go across that crossing on the same level. But I mentioned before that in many cases, now they're, they're putting the bikes up on the same level as the sidewalk. And there is some recognition that there needs to be a detectable delineator, something that delineates this is the pedestrian side and this is the bike side. Now, in all cases that I have seen, the pedestrian side is always the side that's furthest from traffic, furthest from the street, closest to buildings, and the bikes are on the side that's closest to the street. So that's one way you can sort of keep yourself safe if you're on a sidewalk that also has bikes on the sidewalk. It's just staying closer to the building line or what's sometimes called the inside shoreline. Um, but there should be a detectable delineator between peds and bikes. Detectable 
by cane and by foot. And it needs to be something that is unique, something that you, when you come to it, you know, don't cross me. There's bikes on the other side, not like the raised bars that say you can walk on either side if you're carrying something in one arm or you prefer to follow on one side. Um, you can go on either side. Not so for a delineator that says there are bikes on the other side. You might not hear them. You'll be, you'll be in danger if you cross this. So don't cross it. And um, it ha- so it has to be highly detectable and recognizable uh, so that, you know, it has a special meaning. Don't cross here. And yet it, it has to be crossable by pedestrians with mobilities, mobility disabilities. Um, it should never be used where crossing is intended. But sometimes a person who's using a wheelchair may need to be dropped off just right opposite the entrance to something, someplace they want to get to. And they get dropped off uh, on a little median, maybe, that's between the bikes and um, and the sidewalk. And then um, or even dropped off right right at the curb where they're right. The, uh, bicycle track is raised um, so they've got to, got to cross that bicycle track and then cross whatever this delineator is so it's got to be crossable by them it doesn't have to be the easiest thing to cross it just has to be something that can be crossed anyhow so there's only one thing that so far has been found to really work for that to satisfy all the requirements detectable recognizable crossable by pedestrians with mobility disabilities. Um, and that is comes out of some research that, that I did in San Francisco with colleagues, and some of you may have participated in that in uh, 2019. Um, and the surface that, that met all of those uh, requirements, detectable, recognizable, and crossable, was a shape that is a raised trapezoid that just a, a strip of trapezoid that keeps on going, just like, like the raised bars would keep on going all along the way that there are bikes on the other side. Um, to think what a, a trapezoid is shaped like, you might make a triangle putting your thumbs together and then your index fingers together and try to keep your thumbs in as straight a line as they make. My thumbs are kind of curly, so it's not a very straight line, but I'm imagining that's a straight line at the bottom of a triangle. And then I'm going to imagine putting a bar between the knuckles of my index fingers, right across that that uh, that triangle. And I'm going to throw away the top part and just keep the bottom part. So I've got a, a longer flat surface at the bottom, it slopes up, and then it's narrower at the top. And um, when these are installed, the, the base is about 10 to 12 inches wide, and the top is 6 to 7 inches wide, and they're very gradually sloping up on the sides. So they're not a tripping hazard. And um, they're very recognizable when you contact them, especially with, with your foot. Um, Less so with a cane, although though many people can recognize them with a cane once they get used to knowing what they're looking for. Um, but I think if you encounter this, you will find that you really recognize it. It's different than anything else. 
um, it's higher than the truncated domes. It's higher than the raised bars. Those are a quarter inch high. The raised trapezoid is three quarters of an inch high. And that may seem like a lot higher. It is uh, proportionally, but it's still not very high. It's not high enough to be a tripping hazard. Um, And um, otherwise, it wouldn't be easy to cross by by people with mobility disabilities. Um, So very gradually sloping. And the meaning, if you encounter it, is this is a boundary. Don't cross it. There are bikes on the other side. Um, Again, sometimes raised bars are being used in a situation like this. And they give a wrong message because you don't want to cross that. Um, So... If you're aware of uh, a bike lane being installed at sidewalk level, get engaged and find out what they're putting in between pedestrians and bikes. It should be a raised trapezoid. That is the only thing that has been demonstrated to be highly detectable, highly recognizable, and still crossable. Um, So how do you cross bike lanes anyhow? That is often the biggest concern about Bikes is how do you cross the darn bike lane when you have to cross it to cross the street or maybe to get out to a floating bus stop? Um, Remember that the crosswalk might be raised to the sidewalk level, but it should have a detectable warning on both ends. Um, So look, look for the detectable warnings. They should be there on both sides of the bike lane. If there's a signal, use it. And if there's a signal, request an APS if there isn't one. Um, the signal should be for crossing the bike lane as well as the street, but it might not be. And that's, again, something that is worth asking your local engineer how that crossing is timed. Is there enough time in the signal for you to cross all the way from, from the, the sidewalk side of that bike lane all the way across the street, which probably means cross a bike lane, cross the street, cross another bike lane, get to the other side. Does the signal give you time enough to cross all of that? Or is the signal only timed to cross from one medium between the bikes and, uh, and the bike lane um, to the other medium? Um, there really should be another push button out on the median so that you can start from the median in any case, but that's not always being done. Um, You know, there's uh, design guidelines for for constructing uh, bike facilities are are evolving. Um, You know, now there might even be a special signal for bikes to stop, Um, but they're not very commonly used yet. Well, You now know about things that a lot of traffic engineers don't know about that can really help you. And so there's really a need for advocacy. Um, You know things that can help you go straight across the street, a really wide street where you're afraid afraid of veering and there's no parallel traffic. Uh, You can have an audible beacon or you could have a tactile guide strip. Um, If you can't find um, crosswalks, say, at a roundabout, channelized turn lane, mid-block crossing. Uh, you know that you can use that um, raised bar tactile direction indicator across the sidewalk to help you find crossings. And they also provide a good cue for alignment, provided that the bars are perpendicular to your crossing direction. That's a very important part about installation here that is not self-evident. 
Um, people will get used to thinking about the bars going. So the bars themselves are parallel with their direction of travel. It's the opposite way. If it's across the sidewalk to help you find a place to cross or uh, maybe a bus stop. Um, if you're crossing from a corner and maybe there's a, a diagonal curb ramp, or maybe it's a skewed crossing and it's really hard to figure out uh, what you, how, how to align, just a simple square, two feet square of raised bars, again, perpendicular to your direction of travel across the street. So you can square off with it. Um, that can help you get a direction very concretely. Um, you can request, if, if it's a signalized intersection, you can request an APS with a beacon to give you something you can hear so that as you get out into the street, you can just home in on it all the way across. Um, you could ask for a tactile guide strip. Now, you know, in, in California, probably you, I don't know that you have any place that regularly has snow. So probably a tactile guide strip would work pretty well. If you're in a northern place where you're dealing with snow and snow plows, then those will probably get torn up. So an audible beacon is probably a better idea. Um, but either one can give you sure, confident guidance crossing the street. And remember that if you have a sidewalk, uh, bikes at the sidewalk level, there's got to be something between them. And it should be a raised trapezoid. That's like, it's not like the domes. It's not like the bars. It feels different. It's a little higher. And that is the thing that should be separating pedestrians and bikes at a bicycle uh, path that is at sidewalk level. And these are new things. They're not well known. They're not widely used yet, but they are good tools that can really improve accessibility in some locations. So I encourage you to be an advocate. Talk to a friend, family member, O&M specialist that might help you advocate. The first step is always finding the right person to talk to. Don't think that's going to be easy. It will probably take you several phone calls to get it figured out, but be able to describe as explicitly as you can where you're having trouble and maybe invite the engineer out to see where you're having trouble and just what the trouble is and be sure that they understand that your trouble crossing the street might impact vehicular traffic, not just you. If you can't cross the street efficiently, you may delay traffic and Many traffic engineers are still mostly concerned about vehicles. So if you can't do it, it may impact traffic too. So I hope I haven't talked too long to have some time for some questions here. We do have three hands. Um, first, we have Charlene. I've been involved with um, Access in San Diego for some time. We use for a guide strip um, uh, thermoplast. And they put it in three layers, which is kind of works nice because it naturally bevels and it's detectable. But the other, one question I really have for you is the newest thing coming up is what's called smart intersections. And they are computerized with an intelligent um, computer, supposedly. 
and using cameras to determine what pedestrian traffic is and how long mm -hmm. they're going to cross the street. So it will control light instead of just the traffic. But my concern is how is a blind person going to get a pattern? You can't, in fact, <laughs> is the answer to that because they change all the time. There should always be a pedestrian push button at an intersection at which the traffic pattern can change depending on how much vehicular traffic there is. There should always be a push button. And I would always advocate for an accessible pedestrian signal. You, re you really, you know, your, your best bet if you don't have an accessible signal is to cross with the closest lane of traffic when it's going straight ahead. It means you have to do awfully careful listening. It's, it's cognitively pretty intense um, to make sure that the traffic in the lane closest to you is actually going straight. It's not turning. It means that you, you're delayed a few seconds getting off the, the corner um, as you listen to be sure that car is going straight. If it's not, it could be just a car that's accelerating to, to turn right on red. Um, but when you know, you, you hear in, in the list, be listening and focusing on that lane of traffic that's closest to you. It might be going the same direction that you are. It might be going the opposite direction. You know, if you're on a corner and your, your street is on your right, then your closest lane is going to be traffic that's is coming toward you. So you're listening across the street for a car that's going straight. And that is the best way to tell when you have the pedestrian signal. Timing is, it's going to be very hard to tell by timing. It's quite possible um, if, if it's push button actuated that there won't be a pedestrian signal if nobody pushes the button. This won't, won't exist. Um, sometimes a turning phase for vehicles. There may, for instance, um, a signalization may start out with um, traffic going in both directions, being able to turn left. And it's really important that you not cross then because they're not anticipating uh, pedestrians in the crosswalk. And um, they may be traveling quite fast. So you don't, definitely don't want to, to cross then. I'm not sure whether I answered your question sufficiently or not. Okay, next we have area code 925. Yeah, this is Earl. Um, I live in a neighborhood that was developed around the 60s. It's three quarters of a mile to the nearest shopping center. Um, no, no electrical signals, none, okay? There are, there are ramps cut in every... Um, one at every intersection, every one pointed out right to the center of the intersection. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. that's of no use. Also, we, it was designed in the 60s, and they were innovative. There's no corners. Everything just sweeps around in a 25-foot um, radius. Or, yeah. So you can't tell where to cross. Um, 
Yeah. Is there In a three quarters of a mile, there's exactly. Go is ahead. There a detectable warning all, all the way around that corner where where it's level with the street? No. Um, it, it, exactly once in three quarters of a mile, there's one set of uh, truncated domes. Yikes. That's it. Okay. Um, it. You know, so basically crossing the street, and by the way, you know, yes, there are stop signs, um, but the idea of hearing an idling car, mm-hmm. when's the last time a car is actually stopped at a stop sign? Mm-hmm. It happens mm-hmm. occasionally, mm-hmm. but not often enough to worry about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's, uh, oh, and the street's not perfectly straight. So hearing which way the traffic is going is sometimes not good either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been blind for seven years and I've yet to make it all by myself to the to the um, supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, these are the kind of odd things. You know, there's no corners. <laughs> you yeah. can't tell where yeah. the corner is. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not straight. Yeah, it sounds like you you need some advocacy in, in, in that neighborhood for getting detectable warnings in, which are required. Um, they're not required... Uh, retroactively, so you're asking for a retroactive re- uh, accommodation. But um, when when you can't access the shopping area that is in your neighborhood, um, you have a legitimate ADA complaint, and uh, a way to solve that would be detectable warnings, and then um, these uh, direction indicators, the two foot square. Uh, near the end of the detectable warning that is lined up so you can square off with it and and get a certain direction, a sure direction. Well, I like the idea of, of the detectable warning, you know, across the intersection where there's a, a little bump or something, a little ridge. You mean go, Are those going across available? the street? Going across the street. Yeah. Yeah, a tactile guide strip. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what it's called. I'll call up the traffic engineer. So um, I, I doubt that it'll ever happen, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you might want to talk uh, to Gene and, and who was the person that, that said what they were doing in San Diego. Uh, you might want to talk to them about what's being used in, in where they live um, just to get some ideas of uh, ways it can be done. So good, good luck. All right. Well, you know, and, and again, and bicycles, by the way, bicycles stop at nothing. Uh, I understand conservation of momentum. You know, they, they don't yeah. ever want to put on those brakes yeah. because they did a lot of work to get themselves up to speed. Yeah. And yeah. they run red lights, stop signs, you name it. Yeah. 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 Um, if you were at Gene Borkwin's session last year, you probably heard that the, the best thing you can do to influence bike stopping or cars for that matter is that there are three things really um, that, that help. And I would do all three um, is one, put up a hand um, to, in the direction of the oncoming traffic to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to cross here, stop, 
um now they may not see that they may not pay attention flag with your cane i mean lift it up head height whoomp 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 i mean this is this is a dramatic action just saying i'm gonna go here not don't just you know don't do an arc in front of yourself raise it up and up and down several times and then put one foot into the street and wait for about two to three seconds and if you don't hear anything, probably there is nothing. Now, we know bikes are so hard to hear. There always can be. But that's giving them enough time and, and giving them a, enough dramatic influence. You're going to cross. You know, they're going to get spokes in the wheel. They're going to get whacked with a cane if they cross right now. Um, so three, three things. Um, the hand, the flagging with a cane, one step in the street. And the point of one, one step in, I mean, into the bike lane but works hard for cars too. Um, it is, is that you still got one foot on the curb or the curb ramp. You can back up. You know, if somebody's whizzing through and you, you can back up. Uh, and, but, um, you know, just make it so obvious that you are crossing now and you have a right to cross now. And um, that's my best advice on that. Okay. Yes, this is Gene Lozano again. And as uh, BZ was sharing with you about the trapezoid, um, there um, there are a few companies that are developing the design. There is one company, uh, Strongo, who is actually has a product, and it's a form of concrete. And the question has arisen, and this would help because I'm going to be having a meeting with the representative from Strongo and Sacramento County Department of Transportation people on May 25th. And that was um, to have this device, is there a need for an audible sound? Um, does there need to be adequate um, visual contrast? Absolutely, there has to be visual contrast. Yes, and they are very much in support of that. <clears throat> and we've talked about using red instead of yellow so to um denote do not cross stop do not cross over um and this has been passed by a few bicyclists in sacramento and they seem to be in favorable of the the idea of the red that would conjure mm -hmm. but the question is whether there should be the audible sounds some of the blind community here uh, Kane users feel, yes, they do want that additional auditory cue. And there are some people who say it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, the, the product by Strongo probably is not going to give you much audible difference. There are products being available. There's one uh, um, uh, cast iron manufacturer that's working on making them in cast iron and that should give you a difference in sound there is one company that's working on making them uh in i'll call it plastic it's a lot more complicated than that but um but that would give you a difference in sound probably too we do have two more hands raised uh first is david yes david very briefly busy uh I've met you because I'm on the transportation committee of ACB mm -hmm. and we, this is great timing and wonderful information because 
A number of us are meeting with our local MPO in the San Francisco Bay Area on the 19th, this coming Thursday, to begin our discussion of uh, regional wayfinding and accessibility standards. And wow. it would be very helpful if you could please, if you are able to give us, send me an outline, a brief outline of what you gave us today. That I would, would be, be very, very happy helpful. to make that available. We would be very grateful. I, I, I won't give you my email right here, but if you can send it to the Transic list, uh, or I can contact you and send you my email privately. Okay. But we just want to let you know we're very excited about this. Yeah, I'd be happy to make my... Thank you very much. The talk that I just gave available to you. This is wonderful. Thank you. Okay, and Charlene. One thing that is helpful in making sound that people can't avoid uh, when they're using cars or bicycles is to put saw cuts in the pavement. It does help make a rumble sound, and it's not expensive for them to do. And unless you have a lot of sand or something flowing that would fill up the sockets and maybe it would depend on how deep they are that has been a, a real asset or um, inlaid brick but um, those are two ways of making sound mm -hmm. that San Diego's used mm -hmm. okay well, I wish to thank you very much uh, Daisy for uh, giving your uh, morning to us um, this I am, imagine will be the beginning of some future follow-up uh, conversations and uh, possibly other presentations. And BZE will be giving a similar presentation at the American Council of Blinds Convention that uh, I'm not occurring, uh, recalling the exact date, but please look at the joint program of the Pedestrian Environmental Access Committee and the Transportation Committee, the ACB Convention, so you can find that. And by then, there may be some new developments. And um, again, thank you very much, Daisy, and look forward to talking to you and working with you soon. My great pleasure to be talking to California Council of the Blind. Okay, have a good morning. And it's yours, Rob. Okay. Well, thank you, Gene, uh, for an excellent panel and uh, some de some great tips uh, that will be hopefully coming in handy and, and give us some ideas of how to advocate for some of these things. <clears throat> so uh, just a reminder, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, we've got uh, our uh, Diving into Literature. That's going to be... Uh, discussion with Alice and Susan Glass, uh, Alice Turner and Susan Glass, uh, about uh, her new book and various things. Uh, and then after that, of course, we have the uh, Kelly Brakenhoff, who we remember from last year, has those wonderful stories that she describes. Uh, so that's uh, after that. And then, of course, at 6 o'clock p.m., we have our banquet. And so tune into that. Um so I think that's about it. Uh, does anybody have anything they want to mention before we uh, do our door prize drawing and wrap this session up? Okay, Ms. Lisa, are you around? I am here. All right, let's do another door prize and then we'll wrap this up. Okay, we're doing $25 Amazon gift card 
uh, given by the Contra Costa chapter. Let's do a good shuffle here and let's go. And the winner is Debbie Cordero. Congratulations, hey, Debbie. Hey, Debbie. Okay. Debbie and Donna will be happy, I'm sure. So, <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll uh, hope everybody's enjoyed this morning session. I know I have. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, being back here again at 2 o'clock. So, for now, take care, everybody. <laughs>